All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What up, it's Unpaid Bill. On this classic episode of Quest Love Supreme, we travel back to March 8th, 2017. Tom Silverman, founder of Tommy Boy Records, tells Team Supreme about some of the legendary music his company put out and creating a pathway to make sampling more affordable for producers. Listeners can also check out our 2022 two-part interview with former Tommy Boy president Monica Lynch. Enjoy it all here on QLS. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. This is your cult leader. Yes. You are my sheeple. Yes. Tommy's in the place. Yeah. Party people. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Fonte's the name. Yeah. Here's an example. Yeah. Let me clear my throat. Yeah. But not no samples. Roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. That was good. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Good morning, Tommy. Yeah. From Tommy Boy. Yeah. My name is Sugar. Yeah. From Bagel Boys. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Top unpaid bill. Yeah. Steve, say oi. Yeah. About to throw down. Yeah. With Tommy, boy. Roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema You guys are twins. Roll call. Suprema, su-su-suprema roll call. Boss Bill is frantic. Yeah. Looking through my jacket. Yeah. Must have misplaced. Yeah. All my sex packets. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. So it's Laia. Yeah. Your QLS girl. Yeah. And I'm too excited. Yeah. To be all up in Tommy's world. Roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Yeah. 
I'm Tommy Boy. Yeah. I wasn't prepared. Yeah. For this annoyed. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. Suprema, Suprema roll call. He said sheeple. <laughs> Come on, it's hard to run those things. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, and sheeple, <laughs> welcome to yet another edition of Quest Love Supreme. How are you guys doing? Uh, say hello, Team Supreme. Yeah, hey, everybody's fine. Really, yo, mama. Okay, solid. Okay. Right. Uh, I, I have to say that our guest, um, in my opinion, Probably on paper, uh, his his label probably spoke to me more than because usually when you think of con- the consummate hip hop label or the consummate label, of course the D word is always the first thing that comes to mind. But uh, as far as pushing the boundary and innovations. And one of the greatest logos of all time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Like, the, one of the most iconic. B-boy yeah. logos of all time. Uh, I have to say that uh, that for me, Tommy Boy Records kind of pushes the envelope just a little bit further uh, as far as innovation and trying out new ideas. And um, that's what I feel our, our, our esteemed guest today is about. Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for Mr. Tommy Silverman. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, how are you today? Very good, very good. Starting my fast. Day one? Might as well. Good day to start it. Wednesday. <laughs> you're right. You're right. No how long are you going for? How long? It's humpty day. You know, it's Wednesday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how long do you go for? I don't know. I don't, you know, I, as long as I still feel good. I'm drinking water. That you know, I'm starting out drinking water. We'll see. If I go to a fancy restaurant, I might have to eat. We'll have to see. <laughs> But this is day one? Yeah, this is day one. Oh, we'll man, the crank is going to start. <laughs> but it gets good. Yeah, you're talking about the detox, right? Yeah. That's, okay. that's going to be... I'm pretty clean. I feel for you, man. <laughs> um, well, okay, I, I, I know there's a lot that I don't know about you. But, I mean, I know of your, your general story. But I do know that um, your love and your appreciation for music um, runs deep. So Yeah, starting with your dad. That's wow. that's how we first met. Yeah. Uh, I have to say that uh, I I I didn't think that anyone in the the current music world even really knew of the duop world or or any of that stuff. And that's the first thing he came up to me and said, like, "I know your dad is." I was like, hmm, "Really?" So, am I to believe that your first passion in music was duop? Uh, no, but you know, I discovered doo-wop just like you talk about how you discover things through sampling and that. You know, I, I hear heard new things, and I went back and discovered roots. And so, doo-wop was a root that I discovered. I was way, way too young to know doo-wop, but I discovered it. You know, when the sort of the uh, shanana kind of a thing came around, and I wanted to. So it's a revival. Yeah, and I, yeah. you know, I had a Lee Andrews in the Hearts album, which like most people only know the singles, right? You know, right. I I got really deep into it, and it's. Definitely one of the top five or ten doo-wop artists of all time. And you yeah, know, then to find you. that you actually played with those guys in, in the garden when you were 13 yeah. made me have like a different kind of respect. I already respected, of course, hip-hop and the people in the world 
you know, more than almost everyone else. But then to hear that you also had that was, you know, because when I, when I started hip-hop um, and I was working with uh, Bambada in the Bronx in 1980, it was the same corners that doo started from yeah. where hip-hop started, like literally the same streets in the same neighborhoods, you know, the Belmont Avenue, there was the Italian section, and there was the black section, and there were kids singing on every street corner, and it was the same corners that kids plugged in, you know, their, their mixers into street poles and started, you know, it wasn't that far apart. So I thought there was a relationship, and I, you know, I always search for that relationship, even to the point of signing the Force MDs, which I thought was sort of the synthesis of doo-wop and hip-hop. Right. So were you born into a, a, a musical family or a musical collective family? Creative, but not musical. My mom is an artist and my dad is a writer. Are you, a New, are you born in New York? Yeah, Westchester, White Plains. Okay, okay. So like, what are your first musical experiences at, at least... I mean, did it call you well, at an early when age? I was, yeah, when I was, like, my dad was really into jazz, and so, you know, he used to, like, play air saxophone to Coleman Hawkins when I was, like, five oh, years wow. old, and those are my earliest memories, and he used to play Miles Davis, early Miles Davis records, and he had, like, a, a big hi-fi, this was way before stereo, and built into the wall in the house that we lived in, and, you know, and he was, you know, they played Billie Holiday, and they were really in, into that kind of music, so that was the music that I grew up with at the time. So you weren't listening to the the Battle of Davy Crockett or anything that Middle America was into. You guys were into, the except for show high. tunes, because that you know, you know, well, that, that was the music had, of the day. Yeah, that had to be in there too. That was a combination of like of, of bebop and show tunes. <laughs> it's a weird combination, but yeah, that's what played in my house before I was had my own musical exploration, which probably started in '65 or '66 when I started buying my first records. What was the first record you purchased? <clears throat> Uh, Tommy James and the Shondells, Hanky Panky on Roulette. Ah, Roulette. Talking about forty fives. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, was it an everyday occurrence, like buying bubblegum, or was you like buying for forty fives and records? Like, was that like? Yeah, but it was expensive. I mean, you know, for a little kid with you know on a tiny allowance. How much were forty fives back in the sixties? Compete. It was either baseball cards or records. You know. How much were forty fives? Back then? 45 is like 69 cents or something like that, or maybe even 49 cents if you went to Corvettes. <laughs> where would you go? Uh, I went to the local store where I bought comic books, you know, and they had records, some records on 45s. Okay. But was there a place in New York that was like the, the holy mecca center of... Mm, not at that time. Not at that time. I'm talking about like, you know, 65, 66, 67, you know. It's an interesting era, too, because, you know, then there was New York radio, then, you know, it was all AM, there was no FM radio yet, so it was ABC, MCA, those were like the pop stations, and then there was LIB and RL, which was the black stations, okay. you know, and I didn't even find out about the black stations till I got into um, junior high school. So, as far as your, your foray into music, by the time you started collecting, I mean, were you then collecting... The music of the time as far as your... I was into blues and doo-wops. Those were the things that so I So were you collected. an outcast to your friends? Totally. You? <laughs> Nobody what, knew. That's what I wanted to but, get but, but by the way, that wasn't just about music. That was about the way I dressed and the things I was into. I mean, I used to get kicked out of school for wearing a Lennon pin or uh, you know, carrying Mao's Red Book to, to school when I was in ninth grade and stuff. I wore bush jackets with American flag upside down on the back, which was like the signal for distress. And I, I wrote the underground newspaper with another couple of guys in my junior high school. You know, I was like kind of whatever it was, I was against it. So, you know, I was a contrary. So you were the rebel, against, in, the, a rebel yeah. against the system even in high school. Well, you know, I looked, look at everything that is 
and say, what isn't? You know, what's missing? What's not? You know, and so I try, I look at, I invert everything and say, okay, what, what are the opportunities for change? And kind of that may be the reason why Tommy Boy and the D-Label have a different philosophy. I was always looking to do something nobody had ever done before. I wasn't looking to have the biggest hit today. You know, I was looking to do something, you know, where there was no competition. I wasn't trying to trash the competition. I wanted well, to be the first. What makes a person want to do that? Because it would have been so easy for you to just status quo. kind of blend in with the status quo and kind of reap the benefits of the time and ride off into the sunset. Like, what makes you... I guess when I was a, a little kid, I wasn't the fastest or the strongest. I get picked last in the sports team. I wasn't the best looking, so I didn't get invited to the party. So I had to say, sorry, I guess I'm going to have to make my own world. You know, and so I kind of had to reject the status quo because the status quo rejected me. And by the way, if you look at the entire world, everything that moves society forward happens because people are rejected. How many, how many siblings do you? I have two younger brothers. Okay. Oh, you're the oldest. I was going to say, were you the middle child or the, okay. I was trying to get super over analytical. <laughs> and my, I mean, my brothers aren't, aren't this way. <laughs> I see. So I don't know if it's karmic, genetic, or if it's the results of behavioral rejection when I was younger. But I, I think, you know, like if Gandhi hadn't got kicked off a train in South Africa, he wouldn't have gone to India and done what he did. Right. You know, he wouldn't even have thought about that, you know. But he was seen as colored in, in South Africa at the time. And, and he was going to law. He'd gone to Oxford or somewhere for law school. And he said, what's this about? And when he, he became a reformer because of rejection. And, you you know. Jesus Christ, you know, you can look at everybody in history has been rejected, has gone and done, gone on to do great things. So for me... So for uh, you, was music more your, your calming, your, 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 your sanctuary? Yeah, it was also an, uh, an exploration, you know, like, so I was into the Rolling Stones when I was really young, and then I got into all the blues artists that influenced them. So I started buying, you know, old blues albums and learning about blues that way. You know, it's easy now, especially with the with the onslaught of the internet, to get information quick, fast. But you know, like if you're listening to, uh, say, like if you're listening to Zep Two, if you're listening to a whole lot of love right. or whatever, like who's there to let you know about a Willie Dixon or yeah, Willie Blind Dixon. Lemon Je- Jefferson? Or, yeah. or so or, I'm looking at the liner notes, of course. And, you know, when you're, watch, when you're listening to the record in your room, you're listening to the record on a record player in your room, you have plenty of time to read liner notes, and the liner notes are big because records are big. And you can see that Spoonful by Cream was written by Willie Dixon, so I had to find out what else Willie Dixon did or, or whatever. You know, and then I got crazy into Muddy Waters because, you know, his songs were covered by everybody else. And, and so, you know, then I, you know, and then I said, oh, well, he's playing a Telecaster, so maybe I should try to get a, a Telecaster. So then I learned to play guitar, and that was like, I tried to be like Albert King or whatever, you know. So you initially wanted to start off as a blues musician? No, I just wanted to be a musician, and actually Albert King played the least notes, so it was easiest to do. <laughs> <laughs> And so no high school band experience. Well, and also, or... you know, I wasn't, you know, as I said, I wasn't picked first for anything. I was picked last for most things. So, I, you know, I wasn't getting it. I wasn't the most popular kid. So, you know, if I could be, um, you know, a guitar player, maybe I could get laid someday. You know, there was that possibility. So by the time you were playing guitar, like, are we talking the, the 70s period or the... No, still six. Oh, well, early, maybe 60 to 69 and 70, yeah. Okay. 
this is the advent of, of FM radio and, uh, you know, psychedelic rock and stuff. So one's FM. What was that? Okay, so... Led Zeppelin one. <laughs> the entire side. Yeah. Okay, so I, I need someone who was there in real time to explain to me, because I always wanted to know. You know, a lot of people, when they explain to me the power of AM radio, listening to music on their transistor radios and all this stuff, how magical it was. Like, was it really that foreign once FM high fidelity radio came into play? Like, the clarity of it all? Like, was it a revelation to you? No, definitely not. I mean, uh, yeah. Because I hear some people actually prefer the lo-fi AM uh, radio station sound as opposed to FM, which I never... Well, at the beginning... Um, you know, uh, AM ra- radios were, were small, you know, they're transistor radios, so you mm-hmm. could almost put them in your pocket. So that was the first portable music, AM radio. And it was in the cars, only AM. Mm-hmm. So when FM came, they were, it wasn't in cars yet. It wasn't in transistor radio. They didn't have AM, FM transistor radios for the first few years. So, um, you know, it's kind of probably like that HD channel now right you know they exist all over the world but nobody listens because nobody even knows how to tune in you know so you know you had to you had to make it easy and it was hard you know you had to find the stations and everyone listened to the same station so wabc was playing at one time Joni mitchell tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. i mean the most wackest mainstream kitty rock kid, hey, you man, know, get tony set. orlando a break man. yeah but and then they were playing mono de bongo Somacosa at the same time and a country record like behind closed doors. On one station? ABC. I think that Radio 1 in, in the UK is a little bit like that. They play like diverse music. You know, they would play like hip hop and rock and all kinds of music and still do. So people get exposed to more stuff. And as the band got split and stations started to specialize, people gravitated toward one kind of music as a way of sort of appreciating that music but also avoiding every other kind of music so you're saying that fm radio actually started the idea of genres or segregating music yeah rock radio happened at fm only and you know people who listened to that only got rock so they didn't have to hear you know charlie rich anymore so now no more country influence now no more black influence everything was that you know you know Richie Havens was as black as it got, or the Chambers Brothers, you know, was the only kind of things that would get played on those radio stations. So that began the segregation, and that's why, at the, you know, um, for years, Rolling Stone magazine never had black people and mm. never on the cover or even writing about them, except for maybe Sly because they played at Woodstock. Anyone, if you played on Woodstock, you were allowed in the club. You know, that was about wow. it. Wow, okay. I never even thought about that. I thought, you know... Because the idea of FM radio and then playing like complete sides and playing the full version of a particular song and that sort of thing would have made it better. But, you know. Well, it did. I mean, there were great things about it and the quality was better and people talked to you more in a different way. They weren't shouting at you as much. Mm -hmm. It was a, a more laid back kind of a thing. You know, and then I got, when I went to college, I got involved in college radio immediately and became the music director of the college radio station. Where'd you go? Colby in Maine. Okay. So. What was your vision for your college radio years like? So, you know, I did a, so initially I started, started doing my own radio station and I did a doo-wop show, mm-hmm. you know, Cruising Tom's College of Musical Knowledge every Sunday night. Okay. <laughs> and, and then I started doing a party show, you know, by 74 and 75 and I'd play party records, which was, you know, mostly R&B and funky records. I may have been the first person in America to play Lady Marmalade. 
really? Yeah. Okay, so because DJ culture really wasn't a thing in 73, 74. It was just beginning. How do you, okay, so take me to what your rider is in 73 DJing for a college, like, or the idea of big speakers. I mean, yeah, I mean, you do oh, a DJ. Is, this is now. radio DJ, not live DJ. Oh, okay. Yeah. Live so, DJing didn't exist yet, like that. Except it, maybe in Cool Herc, it, it was happening, you know, on Sedgwick, but there wasn't many other places. That, it was just starting there, really, at, at that point in time. In so in colleges, bands were still playing the music of the day, and yeah, that's and, I, out. Okay. and I was in a fraternity house, and I used to book the bands that would come in, and they were blues bands mostly. That's what I could get. Or disco band. So in 75, disco started to take off. Mm -hmm. um, and then Saturday Night Fever came out. So disco started and then Saturday Night Fever came out. So I was doing my a disco radio show. And then a, a club opened, a disco opened in Waterville, Maine. And I started DJing there with a mixture I built myself from Radio Shack Parts. with didn't, didn't have queuing, but just like two giant knobs. <laughs> and I had like two record players. They weren't really turntables, you know, like... You know, whatever so the, the idea of listening changed. to the record before with headphones. Well, I knew the record and I knew what it was. But <clears throat> the first DJ, arguably the first American DJ in in disco, was David Mancuso, who just passed last year yeah. at the Loft, and he started playing in '72, and he played every record to the end, and then he started playing another record. You know, and when disco started around the world, that's the way it happened. The idea of mixing came much later. Uh, there weren't really mixers that had cueing. Uh, until probably 74. Is that when you started the uh, the disco news while you were in college? No. Okay. So that started, uh, we'll get there. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so, we're, so I'm playing black music for a totally white college. You know, there was one. Were they accepting of it? There was like 11 black people in the school and there were only two black families or four black families in the whole state of Maine and maybe two record stores in the whole state of Maine. What was the, what was the uh, outreach? Was it just the uh, the college or like? It reached, we had a 10 watt signal, which is what most colleges had, but we we're on the top of a hill. So we reached like 40 miles. It was pretty amazing. And there wasn't a lot of other radio stations interfering up there. So we used to get, we used to do crazy stuff and get away with crazy stuff on, on the radio station. It was pretty uh, radical. But, you know, playing black music was pretty radical. And people would always call up and request me to play Derek and the Dominoes, Layla. And I told them no. In fact, I was the music director. I took the record out of the stack so no one could play it. Because, <laughs> you know, the idea here is we're supposed to introduce new music. And, you know, both Led Zeppelin and, you know, uh, and Derek and the Dominoes, those were the most played records. And it was so, every show would play them every time. So it was like top 40 radio. And that wasn't the concept. So I pulled them out of the stack so nobody could play them. Did you feel like it was arm wrestling? I mean, I, I, usually when I hear stories of, of tastemakers, and especially like with tastemaker DJs, it's always a moment where it's like, I'm the almighty, all-knowing expert of music, and you're going to love anything I play, and there's no resistance. But, you know, t today, if I go to a club and play like an unknown demo or something that I think is like really incredible piece of music, it's it's a struggle. Like you know, half the dance floor might clear. I, I know we live in a different time now, but I mean, but to really get people to 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 get into something and yeah, that only you're into. I have this discussion, by the way, with the founder of Pandora on a regular basis, who's uh -huh. a friend of mine, and mainly because you need to be able to play an unfamiliar record enough times 
to make it familiar. And the greatest records of all time have to clear the dance floor. The records that change the world, nobody will understand the first time they hear them. It's impossible, because if it sounds like everything else, it's not moving anything forward. So something that's different, no one's going to like. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, it was that way in the early days of hip-hop. You know, black radio didn't want to play hip-hop records, but when they did play it, the phones would light up. And then they stopped using the phones as a, a way of as identifying way. stuff. And they did call-out research to, you know, uh, middle-aged women, housewives at home, <laughs> who hated hip-hop. And so there was always this negativity about hip-hop, especially at black radio. What about those 11 students that were at school with you? Like those 11 black students, did they ever communicate with you? Did we oh, appreciate yeah, totally. or did they add to it? Like, did you hear this record? Yeah. There was one guy who was a good friend of mine who, who came from the Bronx who actually turned me on to a lot of stuff. He was actually a DJ in 75 in the Bronx. Um, and he was a, a year older, I think, and he ran track with me. So I, was, I ran track and so that... In high school, you know, being on the track team was 60% black. In White Plains High School, you know, we had a silver medalist at the uh, Mexican Fist Olympics, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> from, you know, from our school. And he was the slowest guy on the, uh, on, on the um, relay, the quarter-mile quarter relay. He mm -hmm. was the slowest guy. Um, but he's the only one who went to college. The other guys, you know got drunk or did whatever they did. But, you know, I, I remember joining the track team in ninth grade, you know, and go, going to indoor track the first time and being like one of, you know, whatever, 20 white guys on a team of 100 people and getting to hear the music and getting to know um, what they were into. And, and by the way, this was black power time. Mm -hmm. You know, this is when... You know, you know, the fist pick was in everybody, the back of everybody's head, just the beginning of that era. And uh, we had race riots at White Plains High School, and they took the word Plains off, so it said White High School. You know, oh, God. And, you know, it, the Italians <laughs> wow. would come to school with baseball bats, and, you know, the, the blacks picketed, and, you know, and I was part of the resolution committee trying to, you know, get people talking to each other. And it was just an amazing time to be alive, really, because everything was changing. And, you know, it was the beginning of that revolution that made today possible. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson, uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. 
Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When did you graduate uh, college? I graduated high school in 72, college 76. And then I went to graduate school thinking that there was no way I could get into the music business. So I you know, continued my path, which was environmental science, and went to graduate school in environmental geology in Michigan and Kalamazoo. Was there any music? Right, yeah, I was like, wait, as, as you do, that was out of nowhere. Yeah, right. And then after two years there, just before I finished my master's, my old uh, roommate from college called me who was working for Cashbox, which was the competitor of Billboard at the time. He was doing the R&B charts. And he said, hey, you're, you, know, you were way ahead of it. You, you were into disco back in 75. It's blowing up. It's a giant thing. This is after Saturday Night Fever. Let's start a tip sheet. Let's move to New York. Um, and I had sent out 200 resumes to try to get a job in water pollution and water quality and got two interviews and no job offers, and I was super depressed about it. And the it's your came, fault, Tom. The letter no, came <laughs> at the right time, and I said, I'm out. And I said, I left school, and I went to New York. I set up this newsletter for DJs uh, in uh, 1978 in New York City. And, uh, and then the guy came, moved, quit Cashbox and came and started it with me. And we started it, and we ran it out of our apartment. And then we got to know all of the DJs who were doing everything. So, and that sort of opened the door for what came ex- next. Explain to me exactly, when you say it was a tip sheet, exactly what does that mean? So it means that we talked, we talked to record pools who gave the records to the DJs and found out what was happening from them. We talked to record stores. We talked to radio stations. When radio stations went disco, okay. we talked to um, everybody. And we had like um, regional representatives from around the country in Canada that would tell us what was breaking. And we would talk to people about imports that were hot that were coming in. We did a top 80 uh, chart for, that we compiled when we took everybody's information every week. And uh, it was a checklist and it had the beats per minute of every record. And in those oh, days, wow. beats per minute was really big because everything was records and nobody knew what beats per minute were, of what was. So they needed a mixing tool. So Because at this point, you know, mixing was starting to become really big. And in order to be great at mixing, you had to know what the BPMs were. There was a guy in Albany who had this disco Bible and he'd run these computer reports and send them out every once a month with all of the records BPMs on them. And people would pay this guy like a hundred dollars a month for a subscription just to know what BPMs Is he still were. available? Cause I need <laughs> <laughs> So y'all were kind of like a filter, I guess like y'all 
told people what was hot or helped well, the DJs. Like we we did the research because in that point there was no internet. There's no way else to find any information out, and DJs needed to know what they didn't have that they needed to get, what was coming up, what they needed to play, and what was really big beats per minute and things like that. And you know, records companies would advertise, and uh, record stores would advertise, and we used to sell it in record stores around New York, like Rock and Soul down the street here, mm-hmm. and a few of a few of the other record stores here and we were you know we got to like subscriptions and sales of over 3000 or 4000 copies we were reaching about 5000 DJs by you know about you know 1980 or 81 how much for each edition of Jeff? Oh, a, a buck or something like that it was a, maybe a dollar 50 or something like that. they they were the original two dope boys right i about to say y'all were the first blog like right exactly <laughs> it was and it was like a newsletter we had to print it and you know and we typeset it on a typewriter at first and then we bought a typesetting machine we had all this stuff in the apartment and we were running it that way it's interesting so was, so much work <laughs> was it it was it completely national or just like it was international oh so you even took we, we took information from u.s and two and Canada, people mainly. two people you're calling all these djs there were three of us and yeah and there and they we were all there were three of us that all went to school at colby and and we were calling we were selling the ads we were doing the editorial we were setting the type we were doing the you know we we're having it printed and bringing it to the record stores and putting the stickers on and you know the name stickers for each one and you know for, mm-hmm. and keeping the subscription list and all of that we were doing it was unbelievable so at no time did uh a bigger shark like billboard you know any any of these uh other music uh industry people think like to lease you guys or or to purchase the business to work for them no. like was it unprecedented billboard as, were there other had, people billboard had a disco section that was very significant and they already ran a disco conference called the billboard disco forum which all the djs would come to and when i first moved to new york uh, I remember August of 78 going to the Billboard Disco Forum, and, and disco was very gay at that point. I mean, it mm-hmm. was, you know, it, the people who controlled disco music and the leaders in it, it was a very gay thing. And, you know, I was one of the few people in the business that wasn't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I would go to the Disco Forum, it was hard for me to get into the label suites like the Casablanca or the TK suites because I wasn't gay. And I haven't launched the publication yet. But anyway, the, you know, the publication you know, built up and built up. And, and by 1980, we started the New Music Seminar with another publication to compete with the Billboard Disco Forum. Okay. Most people in our listeners uh, know about Studio 54 and that, but I know there had to have been... For, for every Jordan, there's like 12 guys on the playground that are just as talented and ready to whoop his ass. So, I mean, what were the other clubs in New York City besides the folklore of Studio 54, or... So there were probably four accesses in dance music during the period of time. There was that sort of... Studio 54 was the she-she club set, the international people, and, you know, the stars, but it it wasn't known for music. Richie Kazor was the DJ, didn't really play. You know, he played good music, but, you know, nobody considered him the best. Of course, Paradise Garage at the same time was Larry Levan, and he was playing the most amazing music, and the sound system was a Howard Long, sick, crazy sound system in the place, you know, even to this day. What this, year was Paradise Garage? It was like 78 to 81. And um, all the folklore of, of those speakers and the lights and yeah. all that stuff. I used to do interviews and go to the house of the guy who built the sound system. Who built uh, it? Uh, Howard Long. 
Okay. Richard Long, Richard Long, Richard Long okay. and Associates, RLA. It was amazing. And, you know, the, the subwoofers, when you'd walk by them, you know, your pants would flap from the wind, blow, <laughs> and they moved so much air. And then they had tweeters, those piezo tweeters hanging from the ceiling, you know, and, and he had, uh, you know, in, in the booth, he, he used to play on Thor and belt drive turntables, which uh, is crazy because most DJs yeah, only yeah. play on direct, direct drive. Right. And they had built some kind mm-hmm. of... Uh, a rubber band or a spring suspension for the sp- so that they wouldn't to keep skip. it from grounding and right. usually they, and, and also from skipping you know and even though they still would skip sometimes and he was the first guy who had like three turntables and i used to hang out in the booth all the time and and listen to the stuff he would play which was you know more amazing and then there was another part of the business that was latin there was clubs that were more latin oriented and they played more salsa oriented dance music which there was a lot of that too people don't know about it because if they were one then you know then there were the gay clubs which was you know 12 west and you know roy thode and djs like that and they played much higher beat beat per minute euro disco they were running they were tweaking so they were running 130 beats per minute you know the black and then there was the um and there was and then there was so paradise garage was black gay so they were playing a little bit more down tempo then there was straight black clubs you know and they were playing even more down tempo but you know it depends and then i would go up to 1980 i discovered the t connection in africa bambada and i went up to hear him spin and he was doing a whole another thing that was a mind trip that was made everything else that i'd ever seen obsolete so the t connection first of all i always wanted to is there any connection to the the band t connection and Well, they were- Mr. T was the guy's name, I guess, that owned the space, and it was uh, one floor walk up, just a big space with like a, another, um, like a balcony. And that's where was where it located? It was located on White Plains Road, right uh, near the uh, L, the elevated trains there. Um, you can Google it and, and find it on Google Maps, which I've done recently. Cause well, I'm, I'm in, not in <laughs> New York. White Plains is White Plains Road. Okay, so is that the Bronx? the Bronx? It's okay. uh, it's kind of in the central Bronx. It's definitely not in the South Bronx. Everyone talked about the South Bronx, and maybe Cedric could be considered the South Bronx. But this was, you know, Africa Bambada was from Bronx River Center, mm-hmm. which was more central Bronx off off of the Cross Bronx Expressway. You can kind of see it from. It's just uh, north of the Cross Bronx Expressway, and Knightsbridge is just uh, south of it. So you know, you could see. And and I've learned more about this only as I've sort of studied the evolution of hip hop over the last five years and how, you know, um, the different parts, you know, the different crews that came up, came up around where the projects were. So okay. the, the projects concentrated people and then they made it possible actually for gang, the gangs to start and then the gangs turned into DJ crews also. And they all came out of, pro- that's why the early rap, they always talk about their, their project. The one common thread that a lot of the guests that are on the show that have experiences with early hip-hop uh i think the the most common theme is that no amount of fear will ever surpass their need to hear quality music or quality djs um so i mean in 79 80 when you're traveling to the bronx white guy traveling to the bronx like to you, there was no. Were you alone? Like, was alone. there any? And for you, the music was too exciting, and the scene was too exciting for you to even consider. Like, maybe I don't belong here, or something. I just never thought about it. You know, it never, 
It was a weird thing for me because I just because I was rejected always myself. I never really thought about us and them. And I, you know, when I went into these places, the thing I noticed is I might have been like twenty, twenty-five or twenty-six at the time, and going in up the steps to the T Connection because Bambada had put me on the list. I was pro- for sure the first white person that had ever been there, right. um, and. You know, so no pe- one looked at you weird. No, like everybody was, you're lost. <laughs> no, everybody was super cool. They must have figured that I was from downtown, and maybe I was a record company or something like that. So there was, there was decent respect. But you know, I wasn't thinking about it. I was just going up there. I just didn't know where to go. I hadn't been there before. I was much more concerned about getting lost and finding the place than mm-hmm. I was about that. And um, you know, it's never been an issue for me. I never really thought about it. You know. You know, even when I'm in, you know, Harlem world and I hear shots go off, I really never really was, never thought that I could get hurt or something like that. I mean, other people are, think about that shit a lot. I just don't think about it. You know, I don't know. Now, I, I have a lot of those tapes from the T, T connection of, you know, like Cole Crush Brothers and Flash and them performing there. How big is the T connection? Like the size of the, a little bigger than the size of the <laughs> room with a balcony up on top where when I first walked in, I saw Bambada's in front of the turntables and on one side jazzy j and the other side red alert <laughs> wow. Right. wow and i went up and the i avengers. met and I, that was the day i met them all the just avengers, casually right. the avengers <laughs> yeah. over there so i'm saying the average club size is like 150 maybe 200 people can yeah. fit in yeah see when when i'm listening on the tape it sounds yeah like, yeah. like and then it's just hitting me that a lot of the game-changing aspects of the culture were slightly under 300 yeah negrils was small but the bronx river center was a lot bigger you know and the, the other thing you had to consider is that this is all ages you know the kids in there were average age probably 16 or 17 wow. so they were making their dollar at the door three dollars or whatever it cost you know and I, you know then i met bambada that day and he gave me his business card that said africa bambada master of records <laughs> where, where did you first meet him was he that was at, there at your cl- that, right there that day that was the day i i had found out about him by going to downstairs records to do an interview about this new room that they'd opened because they were one of the reporters to dance music report okay uh and they were talking about they had just opened a new room that was like the size of a walk-in closet that was called the break breaks room or the breakbeat room is this the subway version of downstairs yeah. or the subway. other? Okay, right here on Forty uh, Third uh, and Sixth Avenue, down on, on the mezzanine before you go into the subway. So, uh, 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 am I to assume that I'm, I'm not too uh, I'm not too knowledgeable in the history of the owners of Downstairs Records? But am I to believe that they're the ones that first started the idea of comping uh, breaks? And putting them on one record like the... Uh, no, they're not the guys. They're not. No, this was a but record But they first store. sold it though, right? They might have sold records. They weren't the ones who made it. That was re- like Record Lenny and Paul Winley. Those were the guys who did that. Okay. Record, I, I record thought that Lenny, Paul also... Winley had something to do with with the guys at Downstairs no. Records. Like... No, that, re- that that store had been there for years. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a black record store, but it was in the subway. So you know everyone went by it anyway. That's where I bought my disco records. That's also where I bought my doo-wop records. They had a huge doo-wop collection. They had, you know, all of like the indie kinds of things. Yeah, there was a couple of record stores that were in the subways. There used to be one that was around the uh, Times Square shuttle that was a Latin record store that used to walk by all the time because there's a, a huge amount of traffic that goes by. And that was in that was in the subway. This one was before you went in. 
I think I'm going to bring that back. It's it's still there. That record store. Is that one there? The, yeah. The one by the show? The, yeah. the one the Latin, in the Latin Times place? Square. Yeah. What's it called? I don't know what it's, it's called. It's got a Latin name, right? I think so. Yeah. I think That's so. That's where yeah. you get, have your jazz stuff now, right? No, I mean, I went in there a couple of times. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> like, what's in that? What do they sell in there now? Um, like, do they sell wax still? They sell a little old stuff, but yeah, yeah, they still sell vinyl. Yeah. Other stuff too. And where's this? It's like in the time. It's right by where you're saying by the where, shuttle, by somewhere. the shuttle. Yeah, by the path. Uh, not the path. The shuttle. The S train in Times, Times Square. Square shuttle, yeah. Yeah. Right. I forget what it's called. Make a pilgrimage there. Yeah. I. I. I, I think I'm going to embark in that. Like I have a dream of opening a spot that sells 45s in the subway, like a small boutique, kind of like Jiro does in Japan. Like, oh yeah, right. I mean, he charges. Fifteen hundred dollars a mil. <laughs> I'll sell forty fives for yeah, in real gentrified forty five. <laughs> in the subway, you gonna need some security. Uh, New York, yes. I'll make sure it's in the village somewhere. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, are you routinely coming to the T Connection? I mean, I, I went two or three times to the T Connection, but that very night at the T Connection, when I watched what he's doing, I watched how he played the records. I saw the marks on the records. I saw the labels steamed off the records. I saw the tape on the records. You know, all of the things he did. You know, I, at that point, I got to know Ben Bada. I asked him. I said, "Do you want? Do you want to make a record that sounds like this?" Because he was playing, you know, Billy Squire, Sly Stone, The Monkees you know, tra- craft work, all of this stuff together and all of these kids were dancing and it was just, to me, it was a revelation. I'd never seen anything like it. I said, this is what heaven is supposed to be. <laughs> you know, everybody, everything together, it's all okay. If you could dance to it, come on. And, you know, that inclusiveness has been, was Ben Bada's theme with the Zulu Nation throughout, you know, everybody was always welcome to the party. He invited anybody who wanted to come and that would happen at the Bronx River Center for all of the Zulu Nation anniversary parties every year. People would come from every country of the world. And that's where all of the film crews came from Japan and from France and from Belgium or Holland and brought, and brought video back and exposed the whole thing that was happening with hip-hop and the pillars of hip-hop and you know, planted the seeds. So you know, if anybody is the Johnny Appleseed of hip-hop, it's Africa Bambada. And I helped. so to start a label uh in in the early 80s what does it take i mean now when people want to do stuff soundcloud you just put it (laughs) you just release it on soundcloud there it is but if you're seriously now that you you've studied distribution and and djs and you have connections how much does if you're you know starting a label how much does it cost to start a label today in 19 no in 1980 oh well so i borrowed five thousand dollars from my parents okay and because i already had my rent covered you know i was doing the publication i already had a medium that i could advertise in for free because i already had the publication so i had a connection to djs and i could using djs i could break the music through the djs too so i was dependent on that but so by this time, it's dance. The disco news—it's not disco news. It's dance music report officially. Yeah, this I, time. I think so. Yes, by '79 it became dance. When, when disco died in '79, we changed the name to dance music yes. report. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And then, so yeah, you know, 
this was by this is 1981. You know, I'm saying like let's start. So I worked with Ben Bada. I cut a demo for what would become Planet Rock, an eight-track demo, and uh, and I was starting the label up and deciding what to do. A quick question: um, the the effects of the disco sucks uh, period. The the demolition, yeah, yeah racism. <laughs> what was the term? <laughs> no, but the the after effects of it. It was actually more homophobic than it was Absolutely. racist. Yeah. But did it did that uh, affect or deter anyone from starting uh, independent labels? Because I assume that the independent labels of the seventies were primarily to make disco records. Late what the mom and pop labels 70s. were in the yeah, yeah Prelude TK. You know, West End, the, you know, yeah, they were serving that community, the DJ community, because it was so hard to get records played on radio, just as it is today. In fact, it's worse today. But as, mm-hmm. as you know, there were less radio stations then, and it was hard, but there were no chains. So each radio station made their own decision. So you can go to one radio station and convince that programmer that it would be a good idea for them to play that record, if you know what I mean, wink, wink. And, yeah, I was about and to say, put, uh, uh, Hitman, what's his name? Yeah, uh, Frederick Dennett. Uh, no, Roulette Records. Oh, uh, uh, Morris Levy. Morris Levy. Mo Levy yeah. so Do you have he, any Mo Levy stories? Yeah, he was one of my mentors. You know, I have plenty of Mo. Oh. But we, the show's too short. And we're signing off right now. <laughs> <laughs> but so was Ahmed Erdogan and, you know, Chris Blackwell and Mo Austin. So, you yeah. worked with uh, Morris Levy? I didn't work with him, but you know, I spent some time in his office, you know, having can, meetings can with you, him. Can you give us some Morris Levy wisdom? Um, that you're allowed to. I saw, I saw, I saw I, while I was in the office once, so does everybody know the, um, you know, the, what's the what's the famous movie where um, where uh, the guy owes him five bucks and he wants to chase him across the Bronx Tale, you know, in that yeah. Bronx Tale, and he says, I want to get my money back, and he says, forget it, for $5, it's the cheapest way to ever get rid of somebody you don't want in your life. So I'm sitting in... in I follow that rule. So, so I'm sitting in in Morris Levy's office, and a guy calls and and asks him to borrow ten thousand dollars or something uh. like that, or five thousand dollars. And he says, "Okay, I want it back in a week. If I don't get it back in a week, um, don't ever call me again. I don't know you." And uh, and he get he hangs up the phone. He gets he calls his his assistant or somebody said have. Have somebody write up a check for five thousand dollars for this guy. He's coming to pick it up this afternoon, just like that, not a question. And really? uh, so that was that rule. And but he tells the guy in advance, which was the honorable thing to do. And then he pays the guy, uh, gives the guy money. It's not money he owed him; it's money the guy needed. And Morris Levy's always helped people who had gambling debts or other things not get killed by paying the debts off, but taking. You know George Goldner's catalog and Why Do Fools Fall in Love, and that's why it says Lyman Levy, but it used to say Lyman Goldner, by the way. So he okay. just took George Goldner's share of the label. It's why the Beatles that were were originally signed to a their first record came DJ? out on a black owned label out of Chicago, yeah. but because they didn't have their business straight, they lost the record to Swan, and then Capital picked it up after that. You know, history could be different if the Be- the Beatles had been signed. For their entire career to a black to owned Def label, Def Jam Records, <laughs> right? <laughs> no, <laughs> or a VJ would have been right. right exactly. Can you imagine? All right, y'all. 
You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So were you at all worried about what the climate was going to bring in the 80s by starting your own label, especially with the idea of killing off disco culture or the, the backlash that it was facing? Like for the independent label, at least. What do you mean? Uh, no, because I, I think what di- disco never really died. That was a press thing because in 1979, the music business had a recession. It was the first recession. The business had been growing, I guess, off the back of cassettes. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, or maybe it was, uh, I forget what it was, but for some reason, um, catalog peaked and record sales dropped and they needed a scapegoat and they used disco as the scapegoat. Ironically, the same year disco died, out of the top 10 records of that year in 1979, like seven of them were club hits, club dance records, okay. including Michael Jackson, Jackson's right. and stuff like that. So I'm always hearing about like, oh, this is the worst time for music. Like even when Quincy Jones and Michael and, and Bruce yeah. Redina are starting a thriller, their, their first mantra is, we're here to save the music industry. So I'm always hearing of this time where like sales are down or we need to save the industry. I mean, in your mind, when was the, quote, the glory years of of the industry? Well, there's two ways to answer that question. There's the aesthetic way and the financial way. The financial way is easy because 2000 or 1999, 2000 was the peak revenue. Um, By 2010, the 
combined revenues of the U.S. record business were about the exact same after inflation as they were in 1966. So we lost about 60% of all of the employees in the music business and all of the value of the music business during that period of time. So, But now, this year, the business is up between 8 and 9% for the first time since 1997. Um, and last year it was up 2%. Or, so we have two years of growth, the first two years of growth since 2001. 2000, really. 2000. Actually, yeah, 2000 was the last year of growth, any growth at all. Okay. So, yeah, and then aesthetically, I can't really say because you could say 1954 when rock and roll started. You know, you could say 1949 when bebop started or, you know, a certain kind of jazz started, you could say. But in your heart of hearts. 1975 like- when disco started, you could say 1981 or 80 when, when hip-hop started. But in your heart of hearts. What's your, ah, my passion lies with this year. Like, what's your? Well, because I'm into doo-wops that era, and I was born in 54, so that was my era, like, of, of shit, you know, that really touched me and made me cry and made me feel like love, you know, mm-hmm. th- through music and connected to me. But the same thing happened to me when that day at T-Connection, when I saw what Bambada was doing and the connection, I said, this is going to change the whole game. You know, and people talk about the four pillars of hip hop. You know, because it wasn't, it wasn't just music. It was obviously it was this introduction of rapping, mm-hmm. on sort of a formalized way, and you know, turntablism. You know, and then clearly, you know, there was a dance element and there was an art element to it. But there's a fifth element that nobody talks about. And Bambada always talks about knowledge as the fifth pillar, but the the fifth pillar also is sampling. The idea of taking something old and recontextualizing it and making it something new. Bambada did that live. Cool Herc did that live. You know, the early DJs, you know, Theodore and those guys took little bits of things and made them into elements that, you know, became famous later. And so sampling is clearly the fifth. I don't know if there could be hip hop without sampling. I think I can't even imagine the first 10 years of hip hop if there wasn't sampling you know, or, you know, the sampling equivalency that happened. I, I don't even yeah, know. Yeah, being derivative. Case. I mean, but that's with music. I mean, because... That's with everything. Really, that's what that's Zeppelin and Rolling <laughs> yeah. Stones was doing. and Yeah, cover records are that. But, you know, even more interpolations, which have happened before. So before I prepared for the show by going online, because I know we are going to talk about sampling here. And um, I want to quote Isaac Newton from 1675, Sir Isaac Newton, who said... We stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm only here because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And every sample is a sample of a giant that came before. And even if you go to that song, there was an influence. They were on someone else's shoulders. So you got 50 people that go back till the first guy was hitting something with a stick, (laughs) you know. So, you know, it's a really... It's a real big issue that we can't find the past and give today's creators access to the past to create new futures. That's what hip-hop is about. And to me, that's the revolution of it. To add new context to old content is to reinvent the world. That's the ultimate recycling. That's, you know, it's a divine science and art, and I think it needs to be liberated. So when was Tommy Boy born, and why did you name it Tommy Boy? 81. <laughs> Why did he name it Tommy Boy? Well, no, no, no. I mean, what, what were the other options? Like, did you have any other options for label names? So I was studying a lot about this, and 
and you know uh, the label that was existing since 79 that was sort of inspirational for me was Sugar Hill and um you know in 1980 uh when when we started the new music seminar um we you know at that point we were sort of looking at what was happening and uh, what what the changes were happening and that's when i you know sort of discovered bambada and 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 jumped into what hip-hop culture was becoming because by the way in 1980 it wasn't called hip-hop yet nobody talked about hip-hop till 1982 mm. you know it was break music or breaks or b-boy music or something like that um bambadis told me I, I wrote an article in dance music report and interviewed cool hurricane africa bambada and it must have been around 1980 i have to find that article still when and and he was you know they were telling me the story of the roots of this music and how this music evolved because to me i thought we we covered every kind of dance music and you know we covered reggae dance oriented rock every kind of music and you know this was a new kind of dance music at least to our readers and you know i wanted to cover the evolution of it in 1979 when rapper's delight came out it changed the world it's you know it was a game changer everywhere that was like lightning in a bottle that record you know was a, a real wake up call and that's sort of when i started building my business plan for tommy boy you know if they can do this you know, then it's possible that others can, you know, that I could possibly do it too. You know, I didn't think there was special magic between Joe and Sylvia Robinson. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, they might have had more pull with Frankie Crocker or something like that. But uh, I didn't really think that, you know, I was also influenced by reading books about the drifters and how, how labels didn't pay artists in the doo-wop era. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, one of the reasons I wanted to start a label was I wanted to try to say, is there, you, could you start a label and do the right thing? and pay people and do what you're supposed to do and be fair, you know, with artists. And so that was like a driving, you know, issue for me. But it was, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do something, but until I saw what Bambada was doing, I didn't see a path to do it. And then Bambada actually gave me the first record. You know, he was sort of the A&R guy. He, you know, he said, this is a great record. You should put this record out. And it was Cotton Candy, which was the first record I released that wasn't a hit. <laughs> <laughs> Who did Cotton Candy? Cotton Candy was the group. The name of the, the, the song was Having Fun. And it wasn't really a hit record. That was T, TB811, catalog number, first Tommy Boy release. Oh. The second one was Jazzy Sensation, which was the first Bambada record. So Bambada found like you know three or four, and then I'd go to the, you know to his things, and I'd discover the force mds at the zulu nation anniversary party the bronx river center or you know cold crush brothers which i didn't get tough uh you know aaron fuchs, aaron fuchs got, you know. um were you there for the jazzy sensation uh sessions mm -hmm. who was that do you know who the house band was i don't remember who the house band was there was you know, i'm trying to figure if it was pumpkin and the all-stars oh, oh, or not yeah, yeah. i don't think so okay um, i was it was arthur baker that produced that uh, and after I had given Arthur already the demo that I had cut for pl what would become Planet Rock, which which had like replays of samples that were built into it, uh, more than the ones that were ended up being on Planet Rock. And I gave it to him, and he uh, uh, he he said, "Can I produce this?" And I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." But it came up that we wanted to do sort of a, a take on Funky Sensation, so we did that one first. Because that's night and day. Um, yeah. If anything. I can like I consider enjoying Sugar Hill. It's like okay, are they the first hip hop labels? Or are they the, the last, last of the labels. right? The last <laughs> of the disco labels, and like I consider Tommy Boy really the first hip hop, yeah, 
true, you know, like modernized um, between you and Profile, like the real established a modern hip hop label, which is kind of weird. To I, say. So I, another story is I brought Corey Robbins to the T Connection to see Ben Bada spin. He wasn't a hip hop label before. He was he ran a label called Panorama before that, and then he started uh, Profile Records and. Uh, profile records was it, like tommy boy was supposed to be a dance label because i had a dance publication and my djs were you know everything in hip-hop was disco mm -hmm. the beginnings of people don't think they think hip-hop is something else it's not it's like yeah, it's, it's just like jesus was a jew you know hip-hop was disco <laughs> is this on <laughs> hey the last supper was the seder right, That's right. Yeah, come on you know we're fasting and all makes sense <laughs> Yeah, on Ash Wednesday. Exactly. Ooh, meta. So, <laughs> so it's all one with Planet Rock and what it's done for technology and really just taking hip hop's leaps and bounds above. I mean, really starting modern electro music. Uh, how? What's what's this? The story behind it, like how was it just like, hey, I have this craft work record, and how can we make it sound robotic and futuristic like this? And Arthur Baker's like, oh no, because I told you I already had the demo that had been done a year and a half, a year before. That was an so Planet Rock was done in eighty. No, there was an eight track demo that included the elements that ended up being in Planet Rock, plus just the instrumental part and three other things that we ended up not using. You know, besides craft work. Um, so you're saying the track was done a year before? I originally, I, I originally had envisioned using um, I Like It by BT Express, the beat from that. Da, 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 da. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And um, uh, Rick James, uh, Give It To Me, uh -huh. um, Bass Line. You know, so, and those things were worked into the original demo as well. Really? <clears throat> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and then we decided we didn't need that much. It was too confusing. Does that exist? Does that original demo still exist anywhere? I don't have it. Okay. It probably does. Arthur Baker might have it. it was a cassette. It must. It must exist somewhere. Next question. Let the search begin. We got to find it. Everything exists somewhere. Arthur Baker is he still alive? Is yeah, he still yeah, he's doing okay. great. Yeah. He just produced the uh, 808 movie, the movie on 808, which is get, getting ready to be the story. That, thank you. So, uh, what we're talking about here is we we had no money. So we decided to buy one reel of two-inch tape and record at 15 IPS because 30 would have been too much. And the idea here with Arthur was that we're going to make a rap record with what we're doing here, and then we'll also do a vocal record with the same tracks, you know, because there was oh, two audience. Oh, Planet Patrol. Patrol yeah, only. you got it, see? And so, so uh, we, go, we go into the studio, and it's a studio that's in, on, on 85th Street in an old school building, um, that has that we have to walk up five flights of stairs with all the equipment to this recording studio called um, what was the name of the studio uh, Intergalactic, which was a perfect name to start mm -hmm. electro music with. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think we, with the engineer and every all of the costs, I think it costs eight hundred dollars to make the record, you know, up there. And the studio had a Fairlight synthesizer in it. We rented an eight hundred eight. I, I remember with Arthur looking to try to because there was. This guy, Record Lenny, that I saw, you mm -hmm. know, that used to record all of the sessions, he recorded like a famous section at Lincoln High School, which was Flash the Beat. It became Flash, Flash the Beat on Sugar Hill, yeah. but originally it was a plate. Yeah. That, uh, a plate means... Uh, Bonzo Miko. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> we have to explain to the For audience. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Just, forgive me. Did you just explain? Yeah. All right. So, Flash to the Beat uh, is uh, okay. You would probably know it as the 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 drum genesis of Gangstars. You know my steez. Okay. <laughs> the real. But it's really Grandmaster Flash. Flash is on the beatbox playing playing, playing on a very na, primitive na, na. drum machine. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five doing uh, routines. It started out as a plate. We used to call them plates, but they're acetates. And there oh, was a place like a you used to go plate. to okay. to get an acetate made of a tape. And oh. so some people, but they'd wear out fast, but people would play acetates. That yeah. was a really big thing. And game. then a label, uh, Independent Bonzo Mico, which I have no idea. Bozo Mico. Bozo Mico. Yeah. Uh, eventually released it. And that's that bootleg of a bootleg of a bootleg. Like that just made the rounds across the tri-state area. Okay, gotcha. Um, which when... Even when Mattel invented uh, since since Sonic since drums, Sonic drums, yeah, yeah, back in 1981, like I got that for my 10th birthday, so I could do pretend do I was doing Flash and the Beat, <laughs> yeah. So, in your mind, you was that your? I mean, besides the whole idea of Slidestone, there's a ride going on, and what Europe was doing with technology. In your mind, you wanted to bring that sound to the studio? Well, I used to play Kraftwerk on my radio station back, you know, back in 1973. So I was already into Kraftwerk. That's why it blew my mind so much that Ben Bottom could play it in front of a 16-year-old black audience mm -hmm. and get away and with it. And it worked. Right. And make it work. And so, you know, that's what, what changed the game. So that was the one that stood out as the most um, radical departure from what, you know, black music or funk music would have been considered at that time. So, you know... That's the one I thought we should go with, you know, for that. But it wasn't, it wasn't because this sounded like that because this doesn't really sound like Kraftwerk at all. Right. Bambada's style is very different than Flash's style, and I really, I only just recently have gotten to meet Flash, you know, through the Get Down and and being on panels with him and stuff over the last two years. I, you know, I don't really know him very well at all, but I, I have mad respect for him. You know, I've, there were two different universes. There was the Flash universe and the Bambada universe, and I never really entered. Flash's universe, you know, but but even at the time when you're constructing this, like you have no idea that you're, metaphorically speaking, getting in a DeLorean and going ninety years into the future, because essentially, like all the elements that are in this song will determine thirty years later with EDM music, with trap music. I mean, all the ingredients are are there and. So at no point was this like a meeting, like, yo, we got to go to the future. Because it would have been easier to just get a house band to recreate the next. Would have been more expensive, though. We didn't have enough money to pay for a band. See, I would have thought it was more, because that, that's why I wanted to know how long did it take to craft? Because first of all, it's a seven-minute song. Like, who's essentially, like, putting the pieces together? Okay. So Jay what Burnett I, April, is, the, is, is the engineer. The engineer um, was always the person putting it together. <laughs> Shut up, Steve. <laughs> we have learned anything. <laughs> but but then there was the assistant engineer was Bob Rosa, who went on to become super famous himself as a as an engineer and a, a mixer. Both of those guys. And then um, you know we had a synth player that we brought in, you know who who played the lines on it, and um, and Arthur Baker was the you know the producer, 
you know, and all of us were up there just contributing whatever ideas we had using all the technology. There was a massive amount of technology and I started playing around with this Fairlight synthesizer that was in the room and it had like a light pen and a green screen you had to touch to change the things. And I, was, I found this orchestra sound and you could play polyphonic orchestra hits and create this giant sound. That's why I wanted to know, where did that... Yeah, so that, I just said, can we, can we figure out a way to use this? And then Roby, John Roby, who was the you know guy who did all the keyboards and stuff on that and played the melodic parts, came over and did that. And so, uh, you know, we we utilized that. We had rented an 808 because we couldn't find Flash's <laughs> drum machine, and we brought that in. And Did you uh, guys think for a second, like, can we ask him if we could borrow it or... <laughs> <laughs> We, but they don't. Talk, I mean, because they were different. It was the Casanova crew. With, right. He, that's the Casanova crew. You know, it's like gang stuff. You just, you don't. I wasn't going there. I mean, like <laughs> Africa wasn't like. I, hey, I wasn't Flash, afraid to go, and I probably wouldn't have been afraid to go to see Grandmaster Flash either, because you know I, I wasn't thinking about that either. But I, I didn't want to create a conflict. I mean, Ben Bada could have asked, like, "Oh, I know Flash. He'll let me borrow." Yeah, him. I don't know. I mean, oh, okay. I don't know that that he, he had a. They both had relationships with Kurt with Herc but I don't know what kind of relationship they had with each other okay. I mean even watching the get down I still learn because Flash was you know consulting and a, a producer on the get down so to me I learned a little bit about you know these that was written from the Flash perspective more than the Bambada perspective you know that there are two different you know there's a world according to Def Jam where you know Russell has his vision of what mm -hmm. hip hop was and where it came from because he used to hang out at Sal's place which was Disco Fever, and I never went there. I mean, that was where the drug dealers went. You know, uh, I went where the kids went. And to me, the, the hip-hop, the dancers, the creators, they were all young, really young. The older guys, the guys that were wearing suits and drink, drinking splits of Moet were all, you know, and they, were, they had, like, you know, velvet pictures of James Brown on the walls and stuff <laughs> like that. By the way, were these afternoon parties or night parties? Just These were night parties, but they weren't So they, they weren't carding back then as hard and... Uh, they had day stuff too in the parks, but I didn't go to those because okay. I was working. But you know, I'd go after I worked. I'd go out at night and 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 see them there. The um, uh, the Bronx River ones were even earlier because they were in the in, in a rec room in 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 the project. All right, I own an 808 drum machine, and it is hard as hell to program it and really get it to do what you wanted to do execution-wise. Who was the 808 Meister? Was was that Arthur? Uh, I think Roby figured it out. He was the more technically savvy guy, but so Roby, and, that Roby okay. and, and Arthur Baker both work, worked on it um, together and, and figured out what they wanted to do. And they might have actually had done some programming in advance. I can't remember. Um, a lot of that happened all spontaneously there, including the... You know, the, the guys had written their rhymes, and a lot of the stuff that happened with the rhymes was spontaneous, too. Like, uh, yeah, exactly. He forgot the lyrics. Oh, well, I forgot the lyrics. And, you know, Arthur wanted to take it over again. I said, no, that's good. Let's just leave that. You know, that was better. So when it's over and said and done and mixed, are you too involved in it to really realize that you guys might have re yeah, you never, know. You, you never know until you play it in front of an audience. The first time we had an inkling that something was going to be crazy, you know, was when you played it in front of an audience. By the way, this was the second Bambada Tommy Boy record. Jazzy Sensation had come out already the year before and was a hit. It did like 40,000 copies, which for me, 
paid my parents back the loan right away. <laughs> and, um, you know, I remember a very important thing to remember is bringing that record to WHBI, to Mr. Magic's show. Because Mr. Magic was the first person in the world was who he played rap on the radio. <laughs> hmm? was, was he polite to you? He was cool. He was, you know, he was okay. he was super cool. And I went up there, and there was an, the fantastic Alims were up there at the same time. Oh, these wow. twins uh, were Burgess. Yeah. yeah, they were bringing their record up the same day, uh, "Hooked on Your Love" or whatever on Nia Records, which was their label. And you know, those guys were from the hood, and I was totally not from the hood. Mm-hmm. So I was going into, you know, I th- and they already knew Magic, and I was just meeting them, and they played both records. But Bambada had such an audience in the Bronx that the phones went absolutely nuts and I got orders for 5,000 records the next Monday. That's when I knew I had something. One spin, 10,000 watt or 50,000 watt station that had, uh, you know, um, Hasidic Jews afterwards doing Talmud time and, you know, Brooklyn (laughs) Rastas doing, you know, whatever deep reggae before. Uh, And, you know, he had his little three-hour spot. So it wasn't like a radio station people tuned into. It was a show, the only show. But it was the only place you could hear hip hop, so everybody listened to it. And who was into hip hop? And at this time, like, were you, there was sample clearances, even the things like with the cla- the cla- uh, the Kraftwerk sample. Were you the was Mexican? No, it wasn't a sample; it was played. Oh, replay! It was a term. So, so, did the guys that did the Mexican were they like, "Hey, that's our yeah. melody"? Or so we it? didn't have an issue with that one mm-hmm. because they probably stole it from the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and it was really Ennio Morricone. Yeah, you know. Um, so I don't know what. So I, that's the only reason I can think that the, after all the years, nobody ever came. At, but, you know, after Planet Rock became pretty big, I got a letter from the publishing company of, uh, uh, of Kraftwerk. I didn't know I didn't, I didn't really understand copyright law. You know, I wasn't that, you know, I was pretty young. I was just starting my company. I got a shock treatment when I got the letter. <laughs> and we had to figure out a way to settle. And, you know, it was like one of the early settlements. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. What is your distribution game like as far as are you in a position now where you're getting more orders than you have and you can handle <laughs> that you can handle. Are you like I need a full time staff now? To I had two employees. I had I, once I got the letter from Kraftwerk to hire a lawyer full time. <laughs> well, so, not even for, for the sample. The right I'm, way, I'm talking about to even get the record. Yeah, forty thousand records. Like, how do you stores. move that many uh, records with just two? You just people. tell the pressing plant we need more. You know, and you know, and, and we have to pay up front. So yeah, we need to get cash. So we had to go sell records directly to the record store for two dollars instead of. 250 and we get cash so we could pay for the presses you know so you could turn cash flow around fast or we give the distributor a discount and they would pay us up front instead of paying or a half up front there were ways in those days where you could get money if you had a hit and there was a big demand the distributor was happy as hell because it was the big record driving it for them and they needed to make sure that we had cash flow to pay the pressing yeah, plant float. so they'd squeeze us for an extra discount and give us money up front so we could pay the pressing plant were you your own distributor, or who were you using um, at the time? No, I had 12 distributors. To cover America in those days, you had to have 12 distributors. There's a, we had a New York distributor, a Philly distributor, Universal in Philly. Okay. We had a distributor in Washington, Baltimore, Miami, Atlanta, Chicago, uh, you know, Cleveland, Boston, oh Hartford. I'm telling you, it's crazy. <laughs> San Francisco, L.A., um, Texas. And New Orleans, and then what about internationally? And Shreveport, a separate one in Shreveport, is New Orleans. What about internationally? How did y'all do? Internationally, that? we didn't know what we were doing. We we licensed the record internationally okay. to uh, a, a Polygram subsidiary called Twenty One, and they gave us whatever, like a a twenty thousand dollar advance for the for the world. As a president of the label, how are Africa Bimbata and the Soul Sonic Force? doing the song in concert are they are is there demand to bring them like is i mean how are you guys dealing with oh, the yeah. aesthetics of like we had to make it we made a how video. do you make it work on well i saw the video but how do you make it work on stage like are we getting a band to try and recreate this is is there no bambatis dj it because you, you the other thing the tommy boy did was we were innovating um <clears throat> In, in the records themselves. First of all, a lot of the 12 inches at the time were 45s. We only did 33s. We put the beats per minute on the record so the DJs would know what the beats per minute was. By the way, what's the beats per minute in a Planet Rock? Anybody? 128. 129. Very good. <laughs> nerd! 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 <laughs> yeah, but it was on the record. We also put bonus beats on that record. Yep, it was the first record ever that had bonus beats because we wanted to give DJs tools because we knew who our audience was. Sugar Hill didn't think that they thought their audience was record buyers. We thought our, our audience was DJs, and the DJs became record buyers, and record buyers followed, started buying what the DJs bought, even though they weren't DJs. So, you know, 12 inches, which were just a DJ market until like 78 or 79, started becoming Planet. I think um, uh, the first record that really probably went multi platinum um, off 12 inch was probably Rapper's Delight or Heartbeat. Mm hmm. By Tana Gardner. 
Do you know the heartbeat story with uh, Larry Levin? I, w- no. I wanted to say this earlier when he mentioned down tempo. Oh, how he played uh, it. So <laughs> Larry Levin uh, defiantly oh, played. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How he played it like 12 three, times in a row. Three, well, no, yeah. well, they said three hours, but I feel like he, it, it might have been under 20 times in a row. Yeah, like, that's how he broke it at Paradise Garage. Yeah, yeah, he literally was going to force them to dance to down tempo as opposed to disco. Uh, and their thing was to have a sit-in. So for the first four or five times, People were sitting on the dance floor. His audience was like, "No, we're, we're sitting." Sleeping. In. And Larry Levan was like, "No, I'm the, I'm the controller here. You don't, you know, you're not holding me hostage. Don't try that. Don't try that. There's so, only a few people who <laughs> can get away with that. Yeah, He's I like, I will, I will play what you want to hear after I after see I you dance it. to this. And so, <laughs> after the twentieth time, they're like, "All right, damn it!" And then they started. And then they have been. He literally. Stockholm syndrome them into <laughs> that's good to know though but that heart that heartbeat record was the transition and so that is not it's not disco but it is downbeat and then it, yeah two step okay. yeah, it was okay. two step. yeah like he literally forced beat. them by gunpoint to you know it was radical at the time because it was like 91 bpms where the average record was discofied and so yeah yeah but and he already played down tempo compared to the white gate you know, discos where they were playing 129 or 30. So Africa. So the other thing we did was we had an instrumental B-side and a version that had Tina B on it, which was Arthur's wife, Tina Baker. Oh, okay. Um, ah. She's Tina B? Yeah. Oh, crap. I did not know that. <laughs> and and uh, that allowed us to get play on in clubs that were gay clubs because it was the right tempo and they weren't going to play a record with a rap on it. So, that, so our record got played... In, Everywhere, everyone could play our record. Also, um, you know, uh, punk rock was fast, so a lot of the you know people who like to play rock music couldn't play early hip hop because it was too slow for what they were playing. But they could play Planet Rock. So Planet Rock was a breakthrough record on so many levels. Also, Latin kids went nuts, Asian kids went nuts because this whole, you know, this was the Pac Pac Man. Asteroids versus Pac-Man kind of period where people <laughs> mm-hmm. were hearing these electronic sounds in video games and going crazy over them and you know hearing electro music. We also had real support in Detroit, which was like the funk capital of the world from the electrifying Mojo, who was mm-hmm. the big DJ who, who broke all the early George Clinton stuff on the air. And he was God in, in Michigan. And so you know he broke it through the whole funk you know, scenario. So we got really great support uh, from the record because we put elements in it that were inclusive. That look, this record isn't just for the Bronx. This record's for everybody. If you're gay and into Euro disco, play the B side. You know, if you're having trouble getting into it, use the bonus beats to get into it. We gave everybody everything they needed, and to me, that was a breakthrough part of the record too. It made it easier for the record to catch on when you only have two employees in the company. <laughs> Yo, Tom, not to jump the gun, but because you keep talking about how well-versed you were on the diversity of the gay community, is that when you, like, ran into, like, a young RuPaul? Because, I mean, that's a person of a certain age. So I was just curious. I that know was that much came. later. RuPaul was... Uh, 90s. Yeah. Right. Early, I didn't know because he's, he's a certain, of a well, certain he used to age. Be, he, so. he used to intern at the New Music Seminar for us. <sighs> okay. he, he used to perform. I, I saw him perform at a show at the Saint at the New Music Seminar once. Um, you know, uh, and he's an amazing performer. But, uh, you know, Monica really, you know, Monica Lynch, who was the president of Tommy Boy, actually, mm-hmm. not me. And she, you know, she was the one that brought that in. And, you know, because she understood, you know, she was, came from Chicago and she came out of that culture, you know, the uh, the, di- the gay disco, the ball culture and stuff right. like that. 
coming out of uh, Planet Rock, a lot of the stuff y'all followed up with, I guess it fell under like the, I guess they were calling it freestyle at the time. Uh, was it like the Latin hip hop? Yeah, Latin hip hop. Who was some First of those they called artists? it Latin hip hop, then they called it freestyle. Okay, <laughs> okay, gotcha. Um, who were some of those artists? TKA, that was the big one we had, K7, TKA. So the K, K7 is the K in TKA. Tony K. And Information Society. I mean, did it really start with Information Society? Was he? Information Society, which was Sal Abatiello, who had the fever, had a club called the Devil's Nest, El Nido del Diablo in the Bronx also. And and Louis Vega used to spin there. Uh, And Louis Vega discovered this record and brought them in from... uh, Minnesota. These guys are like Vikings from Minnesota, and they came. They came in. The you know this white group came in and played an all Puerto Rican club in the Bronx, and oh, uh, they were white. Yeah, hundred percent. You never saw the video. Not only white, nah. Nordic, <laughs> way white, original white. I mean, <laughs> they were the barbarians from. I New mean, York. you know, because Silent Morning, like all that stuff, just sounded. And all the Puerto Rican kids in my high school. I just thought they were Puerto Rican. Because yeah. I guess they I used to be Puerto Rican. I think everybody's Puerto Rican. Rican. I'm about to say, yeah, Puerto Rican. Yeah, so that was probably 84, like two years after uh, Planet Rock, or may, maybe late 83, because Running was the first record, right. which used the 808 in it also. So, so when you know it was discovered, and Louis, Louis played, these guys thought they were playing to a rock audience because they thought they were a rock band. And when they saw <laughs> nope. they didn't know who their audience was and we sort of had to do an adjustment so they can understand you can try and play rock music or you can embrace this giant this audience here and it was really amazing to see well imagine that a group going against their will <laughs> right. playing playing and surviving off an audience they didn't who would ever have thought that would ever happen to a group man. again i feel as though everything that you've brought to the table uh from tommy boy records especially in the first 10 years of the label uh, was a a foot forward as far as the culture and innovation. And, of course, you know, you already established that as the natural contrarian, you were trying to go to places other people weren't going. Um, and I guess probably the, 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 the second most notable signing of your label. Ghost, that's a... Uh... No. Oh, oh was that? the Force MDs. Oh, Force MDs. MDs. Oh, yeah, we can't forget them. The Force MDs. Um, tell me about... Well, first of all, changing the Force MCs from Staten Island to the Force MDs. It was Dr. Rock in the Force MCs, yeah. So how did you how did you run into them and and sort of groom them? And, like, did they already come packaged as a... We're gonna, sweaters and... No. Because <laughs> I feel like that's you. That's me. Telling them to... <laughs> you know, I already said that, you know, but I saw, I, I saw them perform at... Uh, uh, one of Africa Bambada's Zulu Nation events. They were Zulu. I mean, there were people in that were affiliated with the Zulu Nation in all boroughs. They're from Staten Island. So, you know, all of the Staten Island hip-hop that came out of Staten Island grew up on Force MDs. And, you know, they had Jesse D, who was the singer who used to do Michael Jackson mm-hmm. imitations on the on the Staten Island it's ferry and raise money that way. And, uh, yeah, there were... But they were super talented, and I heard him sing a song that blew my mind at this uh, show. It was hip-hop and hip-hop beats, but they did this beautiful four-part harmony or five-part harmony routine to the F Troop theme song, <laughs> which was really amazing. But for our listeners out there, like a lot of... Uh Early hip hop routines were just based on TV things, yeah, commercials, like, commercials. You know, yeah. Nobody Cole beats the used to do 
rhinestone cowboy and and by Glen Campbell with the bars. He was, yeah. yeah, exactly. So a lot of these early hip hop routines are based on uh, UHF, <laughs> whatever that is, UHF channel uh, uh, reruns and stuff with that Weird Al Yankovic. Weird exactly. Al, yes, it was. Shout out to Weird Al. <laughs> Who wants to be on Quest Love Supreme, by the way? Hey, bring it. Yo. Yeah. I will. It. I will. Bring it. So, okay, back to the uh, four MDs. So you saw them do this routine and you wanted yeah, them. Yeah, and I thought that, you know, they were super commercial. And I thought that this concept of harmony over hip-hop beats might be another departure point. Because you have to understand also at this time, <clears throat> the DJ was the main person in the rap group, not the rappers. And the DJ usually had the musical idea. And their name always was first. It was Africa Bambada and Grandmaster Grand Flash and Eric B. And, you know, it was because the, the person with the records was the master. You know, the, um, the DJs were fungible. I mean, the, the MCs were fungible. There's pl- everybody wanted to be an MC. It, it also, it didn't cost money to be an MC. It cost money. You had to invest to have the equipment, the records and all that stuff. So they were the guys. And... Often they came with a musical idea, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. And again, you know, so these are the guys. And then things, there was a point in the music industry where that changed and they went to outside producers. And that was sort of, to me, a sea change in the music business. But Tommy Boy's strength came from self-contained groups that had a sound of their own that came where the vision came from the DJ slash producer, you know, whether they were a great producer or not was something else, but they usually had a musical vision that we had to interpret. You know, Bambada had a musical vision, Arthur Baker interpreted it. Were, were they uh, easily sold on the Frankie Lyman approach of... Yeah, they were open to whatever. At the at point, they wanted a, a record deal and they weren't going to get a record deal. It wasn't like there was a lot of competition. Maybe they would have fought it, but I, you know, I said, look, you know, it's the same street corners. There's a great story here. Let's let's do this thing, and also maybe we can you know get uh, get girls really into this group because you know girls that's love, what, I, I see you know, <laughs> and so that would be you know a way to expose it and break it. And also, I was dealing with radio because I was the guy who actually called radio too, so I was working radio and talking to radio DJs trying to get them to play hip hop, which they didn't want to play. They hated it. They you know if they played hip hop, they had one slot on their playlist or two slots on their playlist so it was very hard to get them to play it and even though i didn't have any major label competition for 10 years during this period of time there's plenty of indie label competition we were all chasing the same guys with hip-hop records and uh, you know the record had to be really good so you know i thought that a record that was melodic you know a vocal record would would not be considered a hip-hop record but because it was on Tommy Boy and we had had hip-hop hits, they, they didn't even listen to the Guilty record. They said, oh, I can't play this hip-hop record. It's not a hip-hop. Listen to the record, dude. You can play it. Oh, okay. So but, at what point did Crush Groove come into the picture for them, and did it have like an effect on the records? Actually, they on? were in rapping. Rapping. That's right. Wait, they were right. They were ra- I, I remember seeing them I'm, on the Mario Van Peebles. And I'm ashamed. <laughs> right. I saw it in theater. 85? <laughs> I saw it in the theater. I did. I called it 86. 86. Yeah. End of 85, 80, or beginning of 86, yeah. right around I, I, Yeah, I think, I think 4SMD's performance in rapping was the, yeah. that was the, was the highlight of, of
The horrible rap. Uh, what was the song? Well, they weren't. I mean, they were in Crush Group with Tender Love. They, right. Yeah. Was, okay, they so did itching for a scratch and right. And that rapping. was it earlier. Rapping was first, so that must yeah. have been eighty four, eighty five. Yeah. I mean, itching for a scratch is. I mean, let me love you was was a good introduction, but really, I know that B Boys got to open on itching for a scratch, and even when they opened for New Edition, I seen three Full Force New Edition shows, and I always felt like Full Force or Force MD. Oh my God! I said Full Force. <laughs> Crocker, <laughs> for some D's, uh, opening for a new edition, I could tell that they were out for blood. Like they performed harder, yeah. and you know they were doing all the imitations. Oh yeah, they have dance routines. Yeah, way way past. I mean, they were rhyming, they were singing, they were imitating Michael Jackson. They had whack costumes. <laughs> doing well, Popeye. We have like, to talk about. I think that was me on the record. That was you. <laughs> <laughs> you think that Exclusive. was you? Exclusive. Uh, I don't know my sound effects this time. Just that part. Just oh, the last okay. part. <laughs> I see. So, well, yeah, because I always wanted to know why did they, by the time Chilling came out and Tender Love had, had, had made noise. Tender Love was like the first top 10 record for Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah, it was. So, were they, because t- the, the cover of Chilling was like, them in all furs and they was chilling. <laughs> I know literally that, but were they telling you as an executive, like, we don't want to go the bubble gum? The oh, yeah, no, we were over that right away because it didn't work. We tried it, we tried to connect to that audience and it didn't connect, so we went a new way. Oh, my dad actually liked it. He liked so the chilling record, or he liked the well, doo-wop. because yeah. I, I had the let me love you 12 inch and it looked. The way that the photo was positioned, right. he it looked just like the Frankie Lyman thing. Okay. So my dad instantly got, oh, that's what they're they're coming from. Yeah. And so Damn, that's under love. Did though. he like the did he like the music when he listened to it? Uh Forgive you know, me girl. It was, it was my it was my music, not his music, yeah. but I I definitely know but that. But at harmonies at least, you know. I know that he saw the cover and was like, Oh, that's Frankie Lyman. By the, the way, he broke with the cover too. His first record was a record somebody had done before. Really? No, no, no. I mean, literally the photo. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. The, the cover. Yeah, with Clyde McFetter. That's what you meant. Who orchestrated them getting with Jam and Lewis? Like, was that a thing that was for, for the, the Crush Groove soundtrack? Yeah, yeah. Also, at this time, you, you're about to go to Warner Brothers, right? Like, at what point are you... In the middle of, the, in the, in the middle of making that... Re- we had already made that record. Then I was talking to Mo Austin about, about doing a joint venture with Warner Brothers, where we maintained our independence, but we were half-owned by Warner. Mm. So did you were you executive of the Crush Groove soundtrack because it was on Warner no, Brothers? We had we had one record on there and it was going the album was going to be on Warner Brothers but this was going to be the single that drove the album. So this was the single that was going to sell their album for them so that w- there was a natural conversation anyway to talk to them about doing something bigger together. So was that song ever officially on a Force MD's album? It was on Chillin'. Wasn't it, it? It, it, it eventually yeah. became on Chillin'. Oh, but gotcha. after the fact. After the fact, gotcha. But I thought because you were had one foot in Warner and one foot at Tommy Boy, that didn't the single come out on both labels though? Like the 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 forty five was forty five was, was on, on Warner. Warner I remember but wasn't that. the twelve inch on Tommy, Tommy Boy? Yeah, yeah, the deal that we made with Warner was that all the twelve inches came through Tommy Boy, and they had the albums. Okay. So actually, Warner released the Force MDs album Chillin'. I think came through Warner. Um, and we had the 12 inches. That was the deal. We we kept the 12 inches. 
and they kept the 45s in the albums and that for was a while. important that was important for you to keep the 12 inches for the branding of and the also label. we were independent we want we also had international we could make international deals we had our own licensing ability to make licenses we we did our own promotion they did promotion too but you know one of the reasons i did a deal with warner was i wanted access to top 40 radio and they had access to the indie network and the indie network we couldn't was so expensive and we were so small we didn't have the leverage or the scale to access it so when once we made the deal the payola investigations happened and warner <laughs> stopped choosing indies so i never got that advantage which was one of the reasons i made what the year deal. did that stop 86 right right at the beginning of 86 right when we moved over there i see <laughs> wow who knew all right y'all you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So how do you how do you curb the enthusiasm of an artist signed to the label that, you know, cuz because by this point you know, Thriller has gone full bloom and you see the potential of Michael Jackson selling 40 million units and Prince is out there. Like now black artists are finally getting their just due to live in the, or at least the perception of it. Cause I know a lot of that is smoke and mirrors. So you're on an independent label and knowing what I know, I know that the expectation factor of some certain artists are way high and above what the reality is. Like they don't take into account uh, 
okay, you have to do a show in Cleveland, and it's five of you, so that's hotel rooms. And there's a tour manager. What do you mean rooms? Plural. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Got some bunk beds. Sardines. Okay. Well, I mean, well, just the it's idea. Cleveland. Of, we could drive back from Cleveland. We don't need to stay over. <laughs> Shit. The, I, see, I'm, I'm taking my 1995 life exactly. and trying to fly I'm it to 10 years you. before. But, uh, you know, it's. The business it's, was ruined by then. <laughs> it sure was. You never knew hunger. I know. I'm so glad I got on the caboose of that train, boy. <laughs> uh, but how do you? What's what's an what's an artist's expectation? Especially an artist that's not aware of, hey, I gotta pay for this Billboard magazine ad to make sure that you're promote, and that costs forty thousand dollars. I gotta. You know, I'm sure that you've been on the many end of an argument of an artist versus record exec. Why aren't we rich? Why yeah. aren't we in the money? Only after the majors got into the business and fucked it up for everybody else. It wasn't in the in the 80s. That was never an issue. We had to figure out how do the issue isn't to get on the charts. The issue is to get exposure. Exposure leads to sales. That's it. Word of mouth leads to sales. Those are the things that we cared about. So how do we focus on maximizing exposure? So Tommy Boy invented the sticker. Tommy Boy invent, started doing front page strips and billboard on, on every record we released. We treated 12 inches like albums. We worked them as if they were album projects. You know, we also worked our artists internationally. Oh. Back like page they were source. Black. I remember. Oh, yeah. We Dude. owned the back page of the yeah. source. Every, we, we controlled the back page of the source for... 10 years we we advertised in the source when it was still a staple together tip sheet and out of harvard university how do you control the back that means that nobody we, can outbid you on no, the back we, we had a subscription we paid for it all we had it you know we paid in for three in, in advance when they needed cash flow and then we just we we had a contract with them for the back page <clears throat> so you know there were things that we you know there are things that tommy boy did you know when greg mack left uh, the radio station can you well, when he when he left Houston, where he was a hip hop radio DJ oh, in Houston, okay. and we knew him and supported him, he came to K Day, and he remembered that we supported his show at K Day. We supported, you know, everybody, you know, who had a, a hip hop publication when they started, and as their businesses grew, they remembered that we were always there at the beginning. So there's massive love for Tommy Boy, all you know, from the beginning because we nurtured everyone, and and you know this. Very few people you could talk to in the business that don't have love for Tommy Boy, which is not a, a, a usual thing in hip-hop, which is the world of haters, mostly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a soundbite for you. world of haters. <laughs> world full yeah. of haters. There was, uh, on the, uh, the Force MDs Unsung, they told a story, I want to get your side of it, about the, they wanted to work with Teddy Riley. And Teddy Riley was going to do tracks on, I can't remember, it was the, I think it was maybe the third album. And, um, the label just didn't want to pay for it because Teddy was charging at that time what was Teddy something money. that yeah it, it, exactly it was exorbitant. But um, what was your what's your side of that and did was it something that just didn't make sense or how did you determine what to pay for? I don't know. You know, I can't remember specifically. I do remember trying to get them, but availability and the kind of you know like would I pay fifty thousand dollars to clear a sample on one track? No, I'm not doing that. But, you know, Kanye will do that. Everybody, can, you know, there's economics in the music business. And the difference between indies and majors is the indies are 
have to make a profit or they go out of business, the majors don't have to make a profit. They've been losing money for 10 years. They're still here. They're not, you know, they don't have to, and their business is based on market share. So they will spend $10 to make $5 as long as they can control X amount of the Volume. chart. Yeah. We, aren't, we aren't even in the same business that they're in. So when they got into hip hop, it, it changed the nature of hip hop and it made it very corporate, you know, and um, kept some of the sort of the street creativity that came from discovering something on the street and starting with nothing and bringing it to something to something where the second you signed, you know, the Maybach pulls up yeah, it's with a bag of money, <laughs> you know. So, okay, being as though you're... you're it was front-loaded instead of back-loaded. Instead of back, gotcha. So being as though you're one of the last execs that built this reputation off of the idea of groups. Now, in hindsight, I hear uh, people say, especially in documentaries, that it's way more easier to control solo artists than it is a group, um, which leads to, uh, I guess, my, my question about Stetsasonic. As an independent label owner, are you at any point thinking about the, the, the financial hindrance and the burden of dealing with six to seven people? I mean, you're dealing with a group, and I'm thinking that. Five, I think, Stet was, right? Uh, six. Oh, with the drummer, if you include yeah, the drummer. Bobby, well, yeah, to me, that's their angle. Oh, sorry. So, well, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Of course whoever, to him. Whoever, whoever, whoever right. he is. Right. No, but it's just like, if I'm... If I'm pretending I'm you, I'm thinking about, oh, God, a band that's backline, that's a 12-passenger van, if that. Uh, I was saying hotels. You were like, <laughs> right. fuck that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what – I know there weren't limitations back then, but clearly that was the last of an era because in the next 10 years, the I really in the next – six years the idea of a band or a group uh will become an endangered species thing so why we weren't thinking about touring because we, we're the label we're you know our we're only contracted to make money when the group sells music so we don't profit from their touring i never really thought but about you never what thought it, like okay well touring will build we, up their uh popularity and thus you we can make more records and you know, that hasn't always been the case for, for us. Um, in fact, every group we signed, we, we had never seen live till after we signed them, and they never really got gigs, significant gigs. I, I mean, I saw Force MDs. That made me is an exception for that. But Stetsasonic, we heard the record. We signed them off the record. you never seen them live? De La Soul, we saw the... We, not at that time. You know, they, they were developing their concept, and Prince Paul... You know, was involved, obviously was the DJ in that group too, but Mr. Magic brought us that group. So Mr. Magic brought me the demo. I liked the demo, you know, and we brought them and we recorded them. And actually in my apartment, we had a 24 track in the second bedroom. When we moved uh, Dance Music Report out, we moved the studio into the second bedroom. We had a 24 track and we recorded them in, in the bedroom. We put mics in the uh, living room. And, in an apartment? Yeah, in a two bedroom What were your neighbors apartment. thinking? They weren't home. We recorded during the day. <laughs> Did they and record the entire we yeah, playing loud. What song was that that you recorded, recorded um, in the apartment? Just say Stet. We tried to re-record, but we tried to re-record it because they had done it tape in a studio in Brooklyn, and all they had was a cassette, 
and something happened they didn't pay their bill or whatever and there was no master tapes and we tried to re replicate it and we ended up just uh using the cassette mastering from the cassette because we couldn't make it better that's, dope. that's so dope <laughs> like you know like sugar hill yeah, with yeah. flash the beat Nah, you chasing the demo it's like yeah. literally wow. but we did record other tracks up there as well and i remember fruquan falling asleep and uh and also mix machine wise who was like amazing human beatbox at the time now okay the i feel like the idea of stetsasonic and the legend of stetsasonic was bigger than what they actually were because and you know for history's sake whatever i've been respectful in this stuff like okay yeah we're the second hip-hop band whatever i never <laughs> truly I, I never really considered stetsasonic a hip-hop band because when i listened to their records, you didn't hear no instrument. It sounded like Bobby wasn't in the studio. Well, it sounded well. No, well, I mean, he was for the three or four important songs he was drumming on. But I always thought that was a marketing angle more than even when that. I think uh, that was Daddy O's idea, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. In the Beastie Boy issue of Spin Magazine, they were very I, involved. Was a, Daddy O was very involved in um, the. Uh, you know, the marketing ideas and the concepts we used to actually fight about it sometime because we didn't always agree but a lot of the ideas that that are in stetsonic uh are those but you know records like talking all that jazz to me is still a classic the first record about sampling really you know and that whole issue it was it was so I, i'm saying like when you're doing this and by the time didn't they make their debut at the new music seminar Maybe. I can't remember. Which, we're kind of skipping that. You started, started the New Music <laughs> Seminar, correct? Yeah, I co-started I co it with a bunch of other people. There was another there what was, was the another need, What was the need for it? So, the DJ culture was exploding. There was, an, uh, there was a rock-oriented thing called Rock Pool that serviced uh, rock DJs, rock music, you know, um, post-punk, uh, you know, new wave and stuff like that. DJs that played specifically rock music at the time. And the, because rock was so big with the labels, they got big support from the record companies. Uh, and disco was always like the bastard child of the music industry. That's why Chic just got rejected for the 11th time. Um, Sorry. Broke the record for the 11th, you know, um, of being um, the, trying, the most rejected. I'm trying, I'm reje trying, I'm trying. I'm rejected, trying. but Niall will get in this year uh, on, on, a on a special award. But We're going to get Chic in. Yeah, you got to get Nile Rogers specifically because he he'll tell you the story about rappers delighting the sample on we that, know, which is Joe, great. He's a friend of the show. Um, so for the new music summit, when was the very first one? Nineteen eighty, in SIR rehearsal studios. It was a one day event. Nineteen eighty. Do you who performed? No, no, there were no performances at, at night. The first one was just a one day thing, the same day as the Billboard Disco Forum. And the disco forum fell off and we packed like 150 or 200 people in the room and we were talking about issues with radio and issues, DJ issues. We talked about remixing and things that nobody really was talking about elsewhere. And we didn't see disco as 130 beats per minute. We saw dance music or, or DJ culture as something different. So we took the perspective, the DJ perspective, because both of our publications pooled our resources and reached out to the DJ community. So it was the DJ community 
and finally getting access to the music industry through the New Music Seminar. And then that built and built. In 1981, it grew. We went to a club. And then in 1982, it went to the Sheridan. And then it went to the Hilton for two years and then to the Marriott. You know, and I know that there's going to be uh, an episode of oh, the of breaks. the breaks yep. where there's a giant <laughs> fight at the New Music Seminar, which is actually something that happened. Episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you we sure recreated. I met you at the New Music Seminar? That was like in the in the pilot. Yeah, that was in. The, oh yeah, yeah, that was in the pilot. But now we have an episode where it actually takes place yeah. at. The I know. Music I saw, I saw the coming attractions. Oh, for, okay. And it looks just like it. They did a fantastic job. Thank you, man. We take we shot that actually at the. Uh, What's the hotel across the street from Penn Station? The uh, uh, Pennsylvania? Pennsylvania. Yeah, hotel we shot. We yeah. shot at the hotel Pennsylvania. Woo! The rats over there, boy. Yeah, yeah. they got tails to tail. <laughs> <laughs> That's where we shot it. That's crazy. So, what what was your? I I guess when I first started uh, hearing about the new music seminar, um, well, Search has his tales of. That's when Russell first saw him. Um, the night I remember with the infamous Craig G versus Supernatural battle, like what are your what are your fond memories of? Well, because I was running it, you have to understand that um, I I was dealing with registration, I was dealing with planning and you were executing doing everything yourself, like, and I was doing Tommy Boy at the same time <laughs> and Dance Music Report at the but same still time. still going. So imagine all of that. And when this thing was happening, I would move downtown to our office in, uh, on Lower Broadway and we would, uh, you know, and I would work there for like three months of the year and I'd come to the Tommy Boy offices two days a week and be in the seminar offices like three days a week. Um, and then when it, the two weeks before, I wouldn't even come to the Tommy Boy offices. So, you know, it was that kind of thing, you know. So it was, it was so, my memories of it are, you know, the few panels that I got to see because I had to go to all of them and run around and do everything and sort of manage the stuff that I was trying to manage. Like, you know, who was the keynote speaker, if it was Frank Zappa or whoever was going to speak. I mean, you know, the press and what was happening, people trying to sneak in, which was happening. There was so much stuff going on. If there was a fight, which that happened that one time, that became legendary. The Ice Cube versus Lynch Mob one, <laughs> yeah. or yeah, that's I think I, in the Rolling Stone. And I think also uh, Miami was involved because I think uh, uh, what's his name Luke. was Luke was involved with that as well. They were throwing tables. I was told in the panel golf clubs. Yeah. And then I had to stay in the green room, the panelist ready room, to talk to to set up all the people because I helped put all the panels together. So I had to tell, explain to the moderator what we're trying to achieve from each each panel discussion so that the level of discourse would be high enough and we would achieve what we're trying to achieve from each one. It wasn't just go up there and do whatever you want to do. It was like I was producing the, all of the events that were happening. And then at night, then other people were doing the showcases and the, uh, you know, all of the shows that would happen around the seminar. Who were some of the most notable debuts that happened at the New Music Seminar that now are household names, or at least? Nirvana. I wouldn't call it a debut, but they played a tiny little club, um, and they played this. And it was one of his last gigs before he died. Also, was at the New Music Seminar, um, and uh, there was a bunch of rock groups that came and did their debuts. I, I, you know, so much stuff happened at the seminar, and there were so many people that would come. I'm still hearing stories I didn't know about about people who got their start. <laughs> your own seminar. <laughs> yeah, people met. You know, I know a, a big 
producer who at one point was the president of Atlantic, Danny Goldberg, met his wife on the panel he was on at the New Music Seminar. Other people like Craig Kalman, who's the you know yeah. C, now the CEO uh, of Atlantic, Atlantic, used to come to the seminar before he really got started. And when you know people used to in, had interned at the seminar, I didn't know. Somebody told me RuPaul was an intern. I didn't know RuPaul was an intern at the seminar, but I know I saw him at the seminar. Maybe it was that year or some other year. I mean, it's all a blur because, you know, there were, there were like, you know, 25 panels over three days and 300 or 400 speakers and 500 bands performing. It was just so much happening. We, we had a team of like 20 people just to produce that event year round. We had like eight people year round working on that event. So at what point are you now expanding Tommy Boy? When is Monica Lynch coming to the situation? When do you get a full staff? Monica was there f almost from the beginning. So I started with Jazzy Sensation, and I think sometime I met Monica probably around 81 or 82. I can't remember which year Okay, uh, she started right around then, but almost from the beginning. It was just me and her first. They were the only two people that worked there, and then we had we got another person as an assistant, and we started to grow it a little bit after that. What were your? I mean, did you guys share the same aesthetic of like what the label should be, or is it just like, you know, is it her job just to hear what the? And by the way, we were also running Dance Music Report at the same time, so we were still putting the stickers on and writing the articles, and that while we were doing Tommy Boy too. So when she started, she was doing both things with me. Okay. She was doing everything I needed to be done, and that's I needed to do everything. So she did it all. <laughs> what What were your feelings towards the competition, at least Def Jam? Were you guys looking at them like? Well, Jeff, we were in business five years Rick. before Def Jam started. So right, uh, but I'm saying once uh, Def Jam comes, and then it's like, okay, now the car is getting crowded. Well, I think uh, Run DMC um, was it was more, it was more rushed than it was Def Jam. So Run DMC was the first one, and that was Profile, really that uh, stepped into our territory in a, in a significant way. And, uh, you know, I had mad respect for, for what they're doing. I'm very close friends with Corey Robbins still, um, who, who had that label. And so, I don't know. It's, you know, I, I don't know that... I never really was competitive, really. I'm not, a comp I'm not a good competitor. I'm much more a better innovator, you know. So I'm just... I would look at what they would do just so I wouldn't do that, <laughs> you know. Whatever they're doing, I want to do the opposite of that. That's sort of the contrarian thing I was talking about before. Is like, okay, so Russell's doing this and this. What can I do? He's not doing. Which brings us to Daylock. <laughs> <laughs> well, he used to call my music frantic because his music was more R and B influence. You know, he was the guy who would be hanging out at the. You know, I would go to if I would go to the T Connection in Bronx River Center. He would not be there. He would he would be drinking splits of Moet at uh, you know at um, the Fever. You know, he was a fever guy, you know. Wait, it just hit me. Uh, you had interactions with Jay King. Mm -hmm. Would you consider Club Nouveau a Tommy Boy artist, or was that just a distribution? I do. We, we put out all the 12 inches, so yeah. We broke all those records with our team. What about, the, was Timex Social Club also in no. there? Or are they, okay. Timex so after Rumors Blew Up. That was then... on McCola Records, Timex Social Club. Ah, McCola, wow. Don Ooh, McMillan. Man. Yeah. 
<laughs> liquor yeah, house. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, the guy who owned that was label. rumors like the the last. That's the last. That's, that's the unMalico record. <laughs> not Malico, Macola. Macola, not Macola. That, oh, that, yeah, that was NWA. Yeah, that was NWA. That was NWA's yeah, yeah. first job. Yeah. Oh, Bobby, Digital Jimmy Underground Liquid was on yeah. Macola. Oh, so that's the West Coast. Okay. Underwater Rhymes was on Macola. You know, all all of those records he had also had um, what's his name from, uh, from Miami. He had Luke Skywalker was there. You know. All of the Bay Area groups were, were on, the, because he owned the pressing plant on Santa Monica Boulevard. So everybody went to him to get records pressed. So he became the default label. He was a tugboat captain from Alaska, Don McMillan. He, he didn't know to say no. He just said, all right, I'll press it. So, you know, he ran the front door and the back door when the pressing plant. Ah, I see. And so, you know, uh, he, he could have been the biggest record company in the world if he had paid people and done things right. But, you know. Everybody complained that he wasn't he wasn't straight with people. So he just got people to the next level, which was well, he got their record out and got them established. You know, I see. So because I, I guess well, Lino Me won a, a, a Grammy, I believe, or at least who did Bill Withers? Uh, I'm still a Lino Club Me. Nouveau. So uh, what was it about them that you know? Did you feel like we we should expand to the West Coast and? No, uh, I think we or were... Or did they come to you? Well, we had a relationship with Warner, so that was a record label that was signed to Warner that I liked because I was a big fan of Timex Social Club, which I think was one of the another one of the biggest 12 inches of all time. Mm -hmm. It was one of those record of the year records that never got the credit that it due. And I went, right. I went and found found them, and uh, you know, I said, let me do this because I know what to do. You guys aren't going to know what to do. Warner Brothers really wasn't like a black music label they didn't really break very many black artists at all and they definitely didn't know what anything is that was odd to order. say that for at that point 1985 86 that they still don't know how to like so that harvard report stuff was just for not at least the harvard report from the 70s like i don't know that Maybe well do, okay but. well there there was there was a harvard report in 1972 uh that specifically told the majors that you should start investing in black labels. So as a result, uh, Philly International yeah, was a gamble of love. gets acquired uh, acquired from CBS. Labels start, uh, you know, echo to Atlantic. Oh, I never saw that report. It's yeah, it's too the, bad. The, they the, they the infamous Harvard report. So, but the thing is, I don't think Warner Brothers ever recovered from that though. Like they never really. I mean, even when you talk to DJs, and they would just tell you straight up, if we saw Warner Brothers logo, we knew it was whack. Like when it came to like hip hop or whatever, like they had Graham Central Station. That was you know, they had a few <laughs> that fun. And Prince, that was their and black Prince. Prince. No, and that was Prince. it. <laughs> and they had some, didn't they? At some period, they had some George Clinton stuff for a minute, didn't they? Uh, for Parliament. Well, yeah, I mean Parliament. the funkadelic, the funkadelic stuff. Parlette, Parliament, some of that stuff. One Nation Under Groove and and Uncle Jam, but um, yeah, I, I would have thought that that. So you actually went to Mo Austin and just said, "Yo, let me do this. I, you know, I can do it. I can handle the guy, and I can make it, you know, make it work and break it for you." So I got the twelve inches on that. Which leads me to why you treat me so bad. Um, all right. So my favorite hip hop group of all time, De La Soul. Uh, first of all, just the the marketing's unprecedented. I mean. Shit, the first time I almost got suspended from school was hanging those damn Daylos stickers all over, <laughs> all over where I shouldn't have uh, in school. 
That was our second sticker, by the way. The first one was S-T-E-T. <laughs> Stat stickers were first? That was the first sticker. And it was, you know, it was orange and they cost three cents each. And that was street market. The beginning that was of your, crazy that was street your... market. Yeah. Yeah, you were the first, I guess, yeah, your label. Because no other label I, I, I recall really. No, but everyone, so I innovated and everybody took the stuff and outcompeted me, you know, you know. We, they went from stickers to giant stickers Protest to rap signs, cars to yeah. rap vans to rap whatever. <laughs> They're basically buses. giving you credit for co- creating the promo, right? <laughs> like no, you know, we, just little things, you know, that that to get to get exposure. To me, a three-inch sticker that's fluorescent that just has a few letters on it. If you put it on a payphone or on a latrine at the right club, you know. It's going to see, be seen by a lot of people. I, we did one for OPP. Those were the three big ones. I still, that we want, those, I that I still want that OPP sticker. I remember where they went at Magic City during the Jack the Rapper <laughs> conference. <laughs> that, that made everybody, every program director was in the audience. And when they saw that on that, the booty slap with the OPP <laughs> on it, they went back and every time they heard OPP, there was that Pavlovian uh, connection. Yeah. That was the original tip drill. through the cheeks. Yeah. That's what's up. All right, y'all, you know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So when you when you get daylight, um, is it you that's trying to sell up the angle of hippie, the daisy? Yeah, the, the, the hippie image? It was... It was an obvious thing that they, you know, identified what the front art cover was with Monica. And uh, somebody in the press said that. I mean, there was a review. 
<clears throat> that said that. Of course, the alliteration hippies saying the hippies of hip hop makes so much sense, you know. Uh, but then they got reactionary about all that stuff, which is really what really pissed me off a little bit more than the react than people saying that. Say, who cares what people say? Do your thing. The whole idea with me, myself, and I is that you're not influenced by what other people say, and now you're influenced with other what other people say, and you come back with. Uh, De La Soul is dead. Well, which is my favorite. Don't, De La don't, oh, don't, sorry. <laughs> don't jump the gun just yet. I mean, let's talk about the happy period. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, what do you, what are you, what are your thoughts? In Who came up with the Daisy it? Age? You think I came up with that? You think no. that was a marketing idea? I think it was them. Of course, everything I think it was, them. was the sire of the phones. All of that stuff. Everything was them. All we do. But it set a precedent because what? Because this is now the first time. I mean, when Nation of Millions came up, that's the first time I heard white critics salivating over hip-hop. But when Three Feet High and Rising came out, suddenly kids in my geometry class are having uh, hip-hop discussions minus yeah. me. Like, suddenly, it's I see the, I'd seen the first-hand effects of how that album worked brilliantly. Uh so I'm just saying that, like, at what point did you feel as though, like, instantly? Was it when you first signed them for Pluck Tunin, or oh. was it? No, I mean, when we, when we signed them at the beginning, we didn't know. I remember hearing the record Through the Wall. They were playing it for Monica, and I heard it Through the Wall, and I came in to see what it was because usually when a record sounds great Through the Wall, it has a good shot of being a hit. <laughs> if it doesn't sound like anything Through the Wall, it probably doesn't have, I mean... You know, you need to be able to hear a hit two cars away, you know, if you're in a driving kind of a situation. And that was one of, the, you know, it's something that is so different from everything that's the status quo, you know. Um, something that penetrates the noise floor is important for indie labels to have something that nobody else is saying that can go beyond. And that, and I heard it, and I, and I heard it, and when we, Monica and I talked about it, and I said this is either going to be, really big or it's going to be nothing at all there is no in between with a record like this this could not connect at all because it's so bizarre and different most stuff that's bizarre and different doesn't connect uh, or it could connect so it was our job to try to say all right how do we tie it together and connect the dots to make people get it you know and do, you, do you remember the the bill coleman uh write-up in billboard about that record um yeah it's Again, because the late 80s and just the overall disdain of hip-hop with music critics really not treating it as an art form. Art form. I'll say that Nelson George and Bill Coleman at, at Billboard wrote two like major, like these three-paragraph uh, love letters about the record, which... I felt was a, a game changer, at least for the, at the time I was working at a record store. So even like rock critics were like, which one? Um, I was working at Sam Goody's in, uh, in Philly. Mm -hmm. uh, shout out to Sam Goody's on 11 the Chestnut. It. They <laughs> fired me afterwards. It ain't there no more. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, and then they're putting up the display. Suddenly it's like, okay, we're hearing buzz about this. They read Bill Coleman's article and suddenly like, the main wall is having a, a, a daylight display all of a sudden. Like, I see the effects of it. Um, to you, I mean, so 
this wasn't a thing like a mastermind meeting. I, I don't know. Maybe in my head, I'm just having a. Uh, there, a was, uh, there were a lot of meetings at Tommy Boy where we talked about how can we penetrate, you know, culture with this and the media with this. And Monica had a great relationship with Bill Coleman and, and you know, and most of the media. It wasn't just that also. It was the Village Voice because the Village Voice reviewer was the, you know, grand dame, the main guy who everybody else followed. And when he wrote it up, everybody he, <clears throat> he was the guy that wrote up also Africa Bambata. <clears throat> and everybody wrote who that wrote up it? too. <clears throat> What's the guy's name? Oh, Phil, uh, uh, um, Robert Criscale? Yeah, Criscale. Yeah, yeah. Robert Criscale was, you know, he still is, you know, but in, in the era of rock journalism, he was the one of three guys, maybe the number one guy. He was so important. Whatever he said, everyone had to take seriously. So he wrote, wrote it up positively and he had written up Bambada positively. So he was open to what we we're doing because he knew we had interesting stuff and he was interested in that in that kind of thing so it was the combination of all of that i don't really think that many people read billboard you know outside of culture but it was mainstream new york times gave it an amazing review it got crazy reviews from everybody is you know uh so press was one of the things but before that we had already put out potholes in my lawn as a video um which by the way the record wasn't successful the potholes was for that Video was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that Again, was my first exposure to De La. Yeah. With the motorized skateboards and all that yeah. stuff. That was a new concept at the time. Yeah. And we shot that with the Super 8 or something like that, 8 millimeter video camera. Because, you know, we didn't have, we weren't making videos yet. It was still early days and we, there were, no one was really getting play yet on videos. Also, I think um, MTV might have embraced De La Soul early. Um, and they weren't embracing that much black music at the time, but they were well, so TV raps was out, so by the time it, it was kicking in. Yeah. But so was there discussions was to do that, to, to appeal De La to white audiences? Never. Never. Can I, and I say that only coming from a place of, for me, the early hip-hop groups that appealed to white audiences were De La, Tribe Called Quest, and a few years later was The Roots. Like, those were the... We've never actually talked about that. I mean, I just, I, I, I just wonder about... Because that was a lot of... A lot when I first started getting into hip hop, the white kids were talking about De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest, and I feel like those somebody somebody somewhere said something, or I, I don't know how that how did that happen. I, that that's what I'm interested Penet in. So penetrating into white media is what did that. So we were trying to get on MTV because we wanted as much exposure as possible, but we didn't label it white exposure. That's what you're saying. We don't want, we don't like I said when I went into the T Connection. That's just not the way we, we think about it. How much exposure can we get? wherever it is if it's white or black i don't really give a shit if it's latin or whatever and i'm not trying to label it what i'm saying is how did it happen because that was, was the first, college yeah, I, that, well, that's what i'm interested in i don't care you what, know the what? Fuck you call it i i just i just think that to me that 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 was a, a so we thing. there were a lot of things that we did we we had a we had a show at the ukrainian national home that was the first promo show to introduce them and we invited the press to that show and they did a thing live there where they did the Bob Dylan thing where they held up Cue the cards, the, the cards yeah. and dropping the cards. So that made a connection to people that this wasn't the or, an ordinary rap group that they're thinking about things that maybe are, you know, at a different level than other rappers are, are thinking about things. And, um, you know, but we didn't penetrate radio. We had no luck at radio until me, myself, and I. So, and it was it was that song that really made them that took them over the hump. We were getting press 
and we were getting some interest and people were finding out about it, but we didn't have a record that was really connecting until me, myself, and I came out. Did you know it was hit when you heard it, or was it like, okay, of these 24 songs you gave me, <laughs> this uh, is the, well, song number 18 is the one I could <laughs> probably work with. So we have to talk about Prince Paul in this, because Prince Paul okay. produced the record, and Prince Paul was responsible for many of the samples on the album, and Prince Paul's style is obscure samples, and... It was. I used to have fights about that as much with Prince Paul as it is with the rest of the group mm -hmm. because the cost of a sample is almost the same whether you sample something that's unknown or if you sample a hit or something that people would know. And what we're always looking for, especially because I know I have to bring the records to radio myself, when I bring the records to radio, if there's this familiar bridge, something that can take people from the unfamiliar to the familiar, we can speed up the number of listens it takes to make an unfamiliar record familiar. This is like behavioral science, I suppose, you know, but um, so if you sample Knee Deep and people have already played Knee Deep, you know, one spin and people will go, I know that, it sounds familiar, I get it. That's the spoonful of sugar to help the medicine of intellectual lyrics go down. So if we're trying to do something that's that's, really forward sampling and really forward lyrically at the same time we could be just it's the tree falling in the woods and no one hears it you know we need people we need to get exposure so we needed something to get people over with that and there was a little bit of debate because the group doesn't really like me and myself and i it's not their favorite song i've seen them say we hate the song we hate the song we hate the song while they're singing to sold right, out here's, our, here's, here's our hit we hate the song yeah. we made the song uh, but it you know and you know you could talk to mace you know about it and he was a, a proponent because he's a dj he's a proponent because he knows what he that means it. for the dance yeah. floor he he claims that he pushed the group to make that happen or allow that happen or to even use that and let it be on the record but to me that was the seminal record and you know you talked about um, led zeppelin before if it wasn't for a whole lot of love we wouldn't know about Led Zeppelin. A whole lot of love crossed over and it was a giant hit across many formats. You know, it, you need a record that takes takes an artist beyond and then they have the poetic license to do whatever the hell they want to do. And so that got De La Soul the right to do anything that they wanted to do. And to this day, they're doing everything that they want to do the way they want to do it. They don't always sell a lot of records but or generate, you know, an enormous amount of excitement, but at least they're doing what they want to do, which most artists don't get to do. What is it that's uh, keeping De La off the streaming services? Off, like, you mean those, uh, the Tommy no, Boy no, records? No, the Tommy Boy stuff, yeah. Because Warner Brothers controls the uh, those masters, and those masters are, um, they have no, they have samples on them that they they don't have the contracts or something like that. I'm, they, ha they haven't re-cleared them, or they're not comfortable that they're covered. But it's, you know, the same people that cleared those samples cleared Naughty by Nature, House of Pain, and Digital Underground samples. So, and all those are available. So I don't understand why. Oh, what man. the reason is? But I'm I'm in so the process now. So you're not personally you're not personally you're not responsible. You're not holding it hostage. I, I haven't owned the old Tommy Boy catalog since 2002 when Warner bought it. Okay. I'm trying to buy it back right now. Hopefully by the second half of this year I'll have it back, and that's my first order of business. Thank you very hey, much. Word up, word up. Thank <laughs> you, Tom. Exclusive. Bring it back. When when all is said and done, this is what Three Feet High and Rising has at least achieved, which is every sample on that record has made music experts 
out of anyone who was between the ages of 12 and 22 at the time when that album came out. Now I'm searching for it. I mean, did I really care about Houses of the Holy by Led Zeppelin in my sister's record collection? Second I heard that break, I was like, oh shit, that's De La Soul. (laughs) Now I'm a Led Zeppelin expert. I'm going through their whole catalog. To recontextualize it. All the rock stuff yeah. right before uh Can You Keep a Secret? Like all those things. Yeah. It's pack it's it's an education. Yeah, pig, stealing there. So at no point was it ever told during the negotiations or whatever, like lawyers are talking to each other. At no point was it ever explained to the turtles, but to Flo and Eddie that, hey guys, this is actually a great thing for you because now your music is getting reintroduced to a whole new audience was it just like fuck you pay me or are you really even dealing with Flo and eddie is it their lawyers it's their lawyers but evidently i found out what happened is that the one of the daughters heard the record and told dad have you heard this now the, you have to understand the song is called you showed me by the turtles yeah and i i was a turtles fan i bought happy together when that came out and i you know i mean i liked i liked it i liked the Frank Zappa version better, but the thing I really thought was interesting about it is that Prince Paul slowed down the record or, um, from 45 to 33 and mm-hmm. used it at 33. So he used a very tiny amount in an interstitial piece. So he figured, why should I even clear this? Nobody's even going to notice, but they notice. You know, that's the problem. And even if you use a little bit, and they notice, you know. Yeah. But there are people who have won. Um, cases in the last two years about de minimis uses and probably today that case they they wouldn't have if if somebody had wanted to take that case and appeal it they probably wouldn't win it depending on who the judge would be because there have been a few that for something that small and that de minimis would would not be um would you know would not be recognized because it's it's not even that loop isn't even the sample nah yeah that loop is actually you did a thing. I'm looking at an Instagram that you you posted last September, saying this is what's beautiful about hip hop, and this is what I wish publishers and record labels realized. This is this is you, Questlove, by making sampling unattainable <laughs> and only an option for the rich. Um, yeah. But but what these what these greedy lawyers uh, and corporate leeches don't comprehend is that sampling is an education and it gives back. <clears throat> and you said I'm driving home from Brooklyn Bowl, and I hear uh, on the radio uh, a song that sounds like a familiar sample. I shazam it, and I cop the original. Actually, the entire album, evidently, was a Jazz Crusaders record, right? Yeah. I get enlightened with more great music, and, and the labels get another investment in its product from me 40 years after its release. This is when the music is beautiful. It isn't beautiful when you don't reinvest in your crops for real label and publishing house presidents of you meet hip hop halfway and I'll do and it'll do some good. I love to have that conversation because I'm deep in the middle of that and I've been trying to reach you about that, so I'll do it on the air. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I I've, I know for a fact that I've purchased at least. I mean, I'm now a guy that collects covers of songs. I know I I have at least ten to fifteen copies of "You Showed Me" done by other people. You know, so. They've actually gotten the return off of that use in other ways, but not really realizing the ripple effects of it. Um, but I just feel as though because 
it's such an it's such a litigious atmosphere now and only the rich will be able to, to truly benefit from sampling that it's 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 literally killing the music game right now so thank you thanks for the setup so besides <laughs> still running tommy boy and still signing hip-hop groups today and artists i am also involved with a new startup business from sweden called buzz that's uh, that's called Tracklib, and Tracklib is a company that's designed to make sampling fast easy and affordable we're going to all of the labels and <laughs> publishers and getting all of the rights for masters especially the older stuff on a pre-cleared basis so people can download and sample a record for a hundred dollars five hundred or twenty five hundred dollars oh, in five minutes Jesus. online without Are you okay <laughs> um can i play this song real quick this is one of my favorite also that's all i just wanted to play the air horn for that <laughs> <laughs> go ahead continue get him a towel yeah so so you know and we're deep into it we're very close with all three majors we got 22 labels signed we signed vp records reggae labels we're putting we're loading masters up now it's in beta private beta until october it's going to be a revolution because for two dollars you can download a wave file drop it into a new mix when you're ready to do it you can you go back online you can get a license in five minutes or three minutes online for as little as fifty dollars or a hundred dollars and and you have to agree to give up X percent of the derivative work on the publishing and the master side, either 10%, 25 or 50%, depending how much of the original how much you use. master you use. If it's over 15 seconds, it's 50%. If it's under, it's, if it's under two seconds, if it's two or less, it's 10%. If it's up to 15 seconds, it's 25%. That's it. So people can start sampling again, and they'll be able to open up. We're Dude, signing I've deals. been dreaming of this moment <laughs> that's why i've been trying to reach you you're hard to reach life. i have to go on your radio show to talk to you uh, <laughs> i win someone sees it so listen let me tell you who's the creative advisory board already includes prince paul large professor pete rock uh peanut butter wolf you know i wanted to talk to you about joining it too because you're the perfect guy you're already an outspoken I'm advocate i'm there Wow, this is the greatest news. What's what's the name of the track lib? Like track liberation. Thank you. Where was this in two thousand three? Wow. Well, because and and, and, I, and I talk to these labels. You know, when I talk to Aaron Fuchs or I talk to Armin Bladian, who controls the old Parliament George stuff, yeah. Parliament, Parliament yeah. and you know they're telling me, you know, Armin sued four hundred and seventy seven people for fr mm -hmm. sample infringements, and at the end of all of it, break even. He didn't make any money from it. <laughs> So if it had gone through Tracklib, he'd have made a ton of money because it wouldn't have cost anything and nobody would need a lawyer to clear a sample again or a sample. And a replay even costs thousands of dollars. So to use the original, it's cheaper now than, than to even do a replay, except that you have to give up part of the derivative work. But I think that's a fair thing. And I'm telling all the rights holders, you'll make more money because the only person who can afford to clear samples now is Kanye. Mm-hmm. And maybe eight other people. There's like literally Great ten people who can afford fifty thousand dollars per track to clear a sample. Now I'm I'm glad you see it the way that I meant it. Like it came from a heartfelt place. Uh, one of the aforementioned executives that you uh, talked about uh, actually tried to call my boss's boss's boss at my current job. 
to get me dealt with because he felt as though I was trying to, uh, first of all, be anti-Semitic and uh, disrespectful to his way of practice, um, which was never the case whatsoever. Um, but this is a guy that, as far as I know, has made a living suing uh, <laughs> rappers. Exactly. Right, yeah. I'm suing uh, rappers but just for beatboxing. <laughs> no, <laughs> just for using even half of his, uh, even a kick or a snare of his work. I mean, I understand it's a business, but, you know, George Clinton once explained, he's like, yo, the reason why it wasn't by design that, you know, I'm part of the the, the West Coast uh, G-Funk fabric. He's like, I came in cheap. He's like, yeah, crap I, dealer. Yeah. right, I came in so cheap that I made you want to come back for more and my prices were fair and thus people always came back to me. And I just never understood how, you know, in, in any type of music, I I doubt that any, no type of music, I mean, even something as, uh, let's, let's pick, you told me, uh, Steve, that either you or, or, or Captain Kirk uh, told me that Fleetwood Mac's uh, dreams, if you look at the original reel on uh, uh, of, of, uh, of, of, of the reel, the track listing, it's still called Spinner's I'll Be Around Sound Alike. You know what I mean? <laughs> wow. So... It's like no, but that's oh wow, it is a song like now that I think about now, it. Yeah. Dude, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's no song that's created that doesn't start at least with playing another song and figuring out, okay, now what's my version of this if mm -hmm. I just take the Rubik's cube of the yeah, fabric right, yeah. and mix it up? But I feel as though the music business, which is catalogs, are suffering right now because no one's going back to those catalogs and using them. Unless it's being marketed. Yeah, that's in my argument. When I talked to all of them, I said, you've got hundreds of thousands of tracks, and in the case of the majors and even indies, tens of thousands of tracks that you don't get sync deals for, you don't get licenses for, nobody knows about, and they sit there collecting dust. That's the stuff we want. We want crate diggers to be digital and find stuff fast and use it often so that you can have a hit. And I'm, I got the list of the 100 most sampled records of all time here. Hit me. The first is the B-side of a record by the Winstons. Amen, And it's brother. called Ammon Brother, you know, mm -hmm. and that's the most sampled record of all time. The second one is Shines really? Labeat by B-side. The third one is Lynn Collins' Think, which is It Takes Two, yeah, right? Wait, what's the second? B-side, Shines Labeat, remember oh, that? Oh, fresh. Yeah. Of course. Right. Um, James Brown, Funky Drummer. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, the James Brown catalog is already in for TrackLib. The guy who controls the estate wants it to be in. Yeah, he U does. And Universal and, uh, and uh, Warner Chapel, who controls the publishing, are, you know, are happy to make it available because the artist wants it. Some of the times the problem is that the artist wants to approve each and every sample. And that won't work in TrackLib because everything has to be pre-approved. Sorry, Bob James. Yeah. <laughs> when you're shopping, you want to be able to know what something's going to cost before you buy it. People who sample have no idea what it's going to be cost, or even if they have permission to, to use even, it. Yeah, so I'm telling people that 98% of the sampling that happens now is unauthorized or replays. So you're losing all the money. And everyone's telling me, hey, our sampling business has gone way down. Duh. You know, Nobody at some point, you know, there's five people left that can afford to sample. You got it exactly right. 
Dougie Fresh is number five, Lottie Dottie. James Brown, uh, James Brown with Funky, Funky President. President. Yep. Um, then Public Enemy, Bring the Noise. Bass. Which got to have samples on right. it already, too. So <laughs> the other thing with Tracklib is we can't put samples, we can't sample a sample. So what we need to do is get stems of the acapellas for the hip-hop stuff so people could sample the rap stuff without resampling the sample. samples. Okay. You got to go back to the original sample to get the sample. Um, but we can direct people. Then Honey Drippers and Peach the President. I was going to say, Peach the President is I not the top high. ten. I yeah. thought that had been number one. Mm. Well, nah, Amen Brothers, the, that's the one. And Peach the President the probably is going to go to number one con considering the president today. <laughs> <laughs>
Track. I think we're going. <laughs> we we're like forget the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Track. <laughs> Wait, we still got Lativa and then nah, we got sex back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we got a lot to cover. And, we we had, and number nine was uh, Melvin Bliss, synthetic substitution. Yes. And then number ten was Run DMC. Here we go, live at the Funhouse. Ah, uh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, damn, I can't tell. You know story. the one I thought was really interesting. Number eleven was Mountain, Long Red. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. of course. Yeah. I love that. That Loud. was a group I used to go see play when I was a kid. Yes, absolutely. That makes sense. I never would have thought. Then, yeah, wait, you have your top 100? Yeah. Can I hear the bottom 10? Can I hear 90 to 100? Yeah, sure. <laughs> 90, uh, Led Zeppelin, When the Levee Breaks. Uh, Vaughn Mason, Bounce Rock, Skate Roll. Herman Kelly and Life, Dance to the Drummer's Beat, which I can't believe is that low. Um, Knee Deep, Funkadelic, we just talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, Detroit Emeralds, You're Getting a Little Too Smart. Uh, Rob Bass, It Takes Two, which already is a Lynn Collins sample, so it must be a part that's original. Yeah, Hit It is often used. Blowfly, Sesame Street. That's funny. The Brothers Johnson, Ain't We Funkin' Now. Curtis it was Oh, okay, okay, with that part. Yeah. Curtis Blow, Tough. DJ Trace and Pete Parsons, Sniper. And Dyke Bla and the Blazers Talking let a woman be a woman that I uh, let a man be a man, which is we used it with Stetsasonic. Yeah, I was about to say that the Sally yeah. thing. That's Sally. number one hundred. That's number one hundred. I yeah. think. Well, okay, at least in, the, in the, especially in the case of when the levee breaks. Um, yeah, a, a lot of people are just gun shy about using certain publishers because they know that they're going to come. For the Blood. loot, yeah, yeah, like a lot of that stuff. I mean, there's no reason why "Impeach the President" is the number one sampled, number eight. I, th th but there's no reason why it, it should, should not be, be the number one, one because well, that's the funkiest rate. Be <laughs> well, yeah, and it, when it gets to be part of Tracklib, it'll go to number one. Then. Oh my god, but, if but, that happens, you yeah. know the thing is, everybody uses it. So what we really want to encourage is great. We want to have as much of this stuff as we can get. But we want to drive, you know, if we can't get Dyke in the Blazers, what sounds like that? So we want to direct people to, if we can't get it, we'll still have it in there and direct people to something that's close enough that people could still use affordably. Because we don't want people to go away or cheat because they can't use exactly that, especially if they're using this as a, a musical creation tool, which Tracklib will become. Eventually, it'll be built into all the digital audio workstations. It's going to be in Logic. It's going to be in the Fruity Loops and... Wouldn't it be cool if 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 Questlove had you know some custom drum breaks available on Tracklib for sale? You know what? <laughs> what you don't know is happening right now. Okay, is like I'm doing my own, I'm doing my own homemade version of that now because uh, as we speak, my phone is probably buzzing to death. Uh, ever since late January, I've gathered. The entire gods of hip-hop beat-making, from Primo to Pete Rock to Lars Professor to Knotts to Just Blaze to Swiss Beats to Kareem Riggins to DJ Harrison. Who, those guys are, like, he's blowing their minds right now as we speak on this phone. Like, I literally, in Ninth Wonder, like, I've, I have on my text chain 31 beat-makers, um, and I've been giving them a breakbeat a day. Um, but as of now, March 1st, they've done turned it into like, I'm still giving them a break beat a day, but now they're just on some next shit. They are now making records together. Uh, they're, they're producing Conway's record 
Like they're oh wow. So something's happening even right now as we speak. Like my battery is probably going low because <laughs> now not Pete Rock and Knots are having a isolated baseline contest. <laughs> it's like as name we, that snare. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's literally like that's going on right now. I know there has to be at least three to four acts that you almost had that you didn't get. Like, are there any that comes to mind? Like, I almost signed them, or we almost had them, or I dropped them before they got big. How about that? Forget Prince Rakim. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody Rizzo. knows who you're talking about. The Rizzo. Yeah, I know that. Okay. But you know, you, can't, you guys are geniuses here. I you got to realize like that. that there's a lot of people listening. It, to no, if that you need... listen to that beat, that is classic Rizzo joint. I mean, it's it's weird though. It's like based off a of George Michael uh, hook. I got too, too many, many ladies. I, I got to learn, learn to say no. <laughs> Ooh, we love you, Rocky. Yeah, Wait, that so. wasn't that was that on Faith? It, it the song is based on a George Michael and Jody Watley song. On the Jody Watley album. Oh, okay. What, the first or the second one? Was I it think the, the first one? Okay. Well, I I knew it was. You guys are scary, man. You know everything. Oh, listen. <laughs> no, this no is literally a collective of, of of music nerds right here. And so, me. So and, and Margaret. So so who did you who was a close call for the label besides well, the roots? Really? New edition. Yeah, I was gonna say you had Arthur Baker, like why not? So no, we had the Johnson crew. So ah. Michael Johnson's brother is Maurice Starr. Maurice Star, Star yeah. produced New Edition. They brought it to me. A, Candy Girl, mm -hmm. right? And this is right after I got the letter from Kraftwerk. <laughs> and I was shell shocked and I listened to it. And I go, well, if Kraftwerk has a problem with Planet Rock, ABC, yeah, we got five. a big problem with the Jackson 5 on this. And they're 10 times more powerful. What will I do? So I passed, and that was the st one of the dumb decisions. Regrets. Definitely. Never act out of fear. Always just do it and figure the shit out later. You know, go for it, you know. And then the other one is um, there was a, there were a couple of them um, that I came close to getting, but I didn't get. I wanted I really wanted Dougie Fresh. I never got that. Lottie Dottie era. Yeah. Wow. That Why was when it was on Fantasy Records. It was well, it wasn't Dana, Fantasy. Dana, was Dana slash Fantasy. Yeah. No, actually, it, was, it got sold to Fantasy later. It was Danya. I don't think it was Fantasy originally. It was Danya as an independent label out of okay. the Bay Area. And then I think it, it went into Fantasy. Such uh, an odd choice. I know. It was really weird. You pursued him, and he was like, nope, I'm going yeah, with Yeah, he label. performed at Tommy Boy offices. He came to our offices up on 92nd Street, and we used to do this Wednesday night thing where groups could come up and, and audition and do stuff. You know, we did it, didn't do it for very long, but one of the people who came by, and I remember him beatboxing in the office was was, was him. And there were a few others. You know, I sometimes I don't always know about them because especially after 1990 when the company started to have a lot of employees and got really big, sometimes people would come in or different A&R guys had stuff. Like I just was talking to Lord Jamar the other day, was by the office, and um, he said Brand Nubian was supposed to be on Tommy Boy, but Dante was the... A and R guy Dante the Scrub, mm -hmm. and and he uh, he was our second. Uh, he went to a lecture. He was our second uh, guest on the show. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, what was your relationship with Dante? He was the, one of the A and R guys. He's the one who brought in Queen Latifah. So we're talking about Queen Latifah. That ah. that's the expression. So he he's the A and R guy, the one A and R guy in Tommy Boy who brought in the most stuff. 
we got we had a lot a lot of A&R guys dozens he's the only one I can remember as actually having impact and bringing in artists that actually made money so did you trust his ear yeah and I mean I know that with A&Rs they have to watch the budget make sure that da 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 doesn't go over any of those things like was he like your trustworthy your best student or however you want to he was um he was his own best student you know he knew what he wanted <laughs> he wasn't really interested you know he has his own way of seeing things at least at the, that time he's let's call it impetuous um, but at the time did you know that he was bringing you history yeah i mean of course, because, because least... he did he did with i mean he was an our, he was our trusted a and r guy so yeah he brought some stuff in so that was great he brought in a couple of cool really great things and i can tell you i appreciate him more 10 years later after I went through 12 other A&R people who didn't ever bring anything in, <laughs> right. I could really think, you know, what he did was pretty great, you know. But, you know, he was short-tempered and uh, Im- impatient about stuff. He also didn't always want to hear the other side of, you know, the corporate shit we have to deal with, you know, as corporations to get things through and to the cost and making things happen. So we couldn't always do everything, but, you know. And there were all, also there are other elements, and he also wasn't the guy who had to bring the record to radio and get exposure for artists. And so when, whenever we looked at artists, we looked at their unique appeal, and then we look at what, what is the route to exposure for them? How can we get exposure? I mean, we signed artists that had, like De La Soul, there was no route to exposure when we signed De La Soul. But sometimes you just do things because you love it. Uh, if De La Soul was... A half a million dollars to sign, we wouldn't have signed De La Soul. We couldn't have. I was going to say, uh, Paz told me that the the, the recording budget. budget for Three Feet High was like twenty eight thousand dollars. Exactly. Like, how? How's that? How's You're that even able to happen? Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think we might have cleared the samples on that budget too. <laughs> in those days, no that, is, that tells you how bad it is today. No, I know, but I'm just saying, just in in. Comparison, you know, I'm, but, I'm but thinking can, like can my you, early years was like nightmares. But if I, if I, you know, when you're an independent label, I always think about you know the days of Morris Levy. We were talking about before when seven inches is all that sold, and seven inches label sold seven inches to stores for twenty nine cents, and they cost twelve cents to make. So the margins were really tiny. So a gold record might have meant you know a hundred thousand dollars in those days. You know, in this era, we were selling 12 inches, and 12 inches at 4.98 was how we made most of our money. The album sales were ancillary. Most of our artists, we did deals for a, a 12, two 12 inches and, and and an option for an album that we would pick up later. When we had to make, we I think with Dela, we made a firm option for an album. If we didn't, we picked it up right away, even before we released me, myself, and I, because we knew what it was. But the deal was economical enough that we could justify it. Um, taking a risk and so what you said about sampling is also true to artists an artist that's saying something very different than what everyone else is saying right now or has a sound that's unique and doesn't sound like what's out there shouldn't expect to get the kind of deal that somebody that sounds like Rihanna is going to get because people who think it's the next Rihanna will pay Rihanna you know next Rihanna money people are saying look this is a 50 to 1 shot but I love it that music should still come out we need more crazy records coming out that break expectations and that we don't have to have sales expectations when an artist signs for a half a million dollars or even for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars the expectations are way high, high. Already. and and if you don't have if the first single isn't a hit 
you're dropped. I mean, you heard all the Interscope stories about mm -hmm. these artists, they were signing for a million dollars and dropped before the album came out. The first single didn't hit. It's too expensive. There's taking gigantic advantages, advances is not really in the best advantage of the artist. The artist really should say, how do I get a bigger piece in the back end than a giant piece in the front end? But managers commission that piece, mm -hmm. lawyers commission that piece, so everyone gets bad advice. Artists that are super creative, hold on to as much of the equity as you can hold on to and get paid a, you know, a bigger piece and take a smaller advance. And it's also just get more times at bat. Like and it, more times at yeah, bat. Yeah, it's like, yo, if my first one don't pop, I at least let me get, exactly. can I get two more at least? Exactly. Like, yeah. the, my, my thing is, what if it's the third swing or the fourth swing? All those artists that signed to the majors, they don't get a third swing. It's strike two, you're out. <laughs> strike one, yeah. you're out. You so, know, what if their best record is on the second album? You're not getting to the second album. It's just not going to happen in this economics. So you either let your lawyers and managers from the old days still convince you you got to get the biggest upfront deal because it's good for them, for the biggest, you know, from the biggest labels, or you sign to an indie or put your record out yourself on TuneCore. But, if you know, you still need a team that's got to help complement and build a marketing plan and execute and try to get you exposure and, and help you with a reality check and, you know, guide you through the process. You know, I don't know. You know, I, it just seems to me like the, that there's, I think that in this day and age, artists should be smarter now. They shouldn't be taking traditional record deals anymore. You said you have a, a meet coming up uh, after this. You have a meeting with Naughty by Nature. Yeah. And, uh, there's a story about Tretch and some wildlife in the offices. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so were you done? Snake or yeah, something? Yeah, the snake. Snake and mice. I heard so of this. How did? Was that real? Yeah. Okay. Wait, how, that was real? Yeah. Oh, I thought, what I thought, happened? I thought, I thought it was did, folklore. Yeah. How did? What? What was that situation? And how did that situation go? First, from I want to say, now? Tommy Boy only ever, ever had to have guards or any kind of armed anything in our office two days in the history of the company okay we never had bulletproof glass we never had beef with artists or anything like that but there was a time when tretch wasn't in touch with kg and Vinny or whatever and we were working trying to work something out where they can do something on somebody else's record and by the way it had already been worked out and <laughs> with everybody else but tretch didn't know and he was pissed off so he came and he let he let some garter snakes and mice from the pet store loose in the office. <laughs> and, and I found out later that... Were you in the office that, when that this happened? a lawyer re told him to do it. Uh, Paul Marshall, who passed a few years ago, who was actually the lawyer that represented the Beatles when they went to VJ, <laughs> actually told him that he should do it. Paul Marshall told me this, which I found I later. just want to rewind an hour before when he's at, like, Petco... <laughs> Yeah. Hi, are you looking? Is this a house house pet? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I need Something some like that. Are the snakes recoupable? <laughs> <laughs> but now y'all are cool. Now y'all are. Yeah. Okay. Y'all are cool now. Okay. That's you know, awesome. you we're know, trying what, to work with them. You know, the thing about Naughty is. All right, so we're we're there's been some times where we've done shows with Naughty, and. Between the audience reaction and just the onslaught of hit after hit after hit after hit anthems, like yeah. I mean, Naughty by Nature's catalog, bar none. I mean, I'm so at the time when I was playing it, I was like, wow. When they came out, I didn't show my full appreciation as I should have, but now in 
Like, there should be no reason in the world why they don't work uh, until they're ninety. I mean, not in- until they're 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 long gone. Like, these songs still work, and as long as Naughty's willing to do it, I mean, I almost feel as, as though like Naughty is probably the most credible pop hip hop act. I would say maybe either them. Well, I'm with you. Them and like Wu Tang, because like the first Wu Tang album. But the thing is, I don't think Wu Tang knew. That's the thing. It's like Wu Tang's first record is full of of all these modern pop culture hits. Yeah, yeah. Like they're referencing Donnie Marie and Underdog and the Flintstones and you know Schoolhouse Rock. Like real. I mean, they're like De La Soul, Mm. but it's so grimy that you forget. That they're coming from that, but just in terms of naughty by nature, it's like they're giving you anthem after anthem after anthem. How come? It, and I'm asking this it kind of is, is two sword question. How? Why weren't they marketed as like pop hit like makers? A or something? Well, no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> Dolly. It's I know. <laughs> Because Tretch was running around with a machete. Yeah, yeah, he had tools. This nigga had chains on him. Don't you think that, that is death? If if we had done that, if we had worked them, yeah, as I was going to say, I mean, that's why they would have lost all the I mean, that explains the machete. I mean, they were a pop back, but they had to be disguised a little bit harder, you know. Otherwise, it would have come off as whack. Right? So you're saying that that's were they aware of it? Because yeah, I mean, hip hop array is isn't a pop song per se. I mean, it has a Curtis Mayfield breakbeat. Yeah. Who's arguing with the Isley uh, brothers? Isley you got to kind of look at KG's production though, because he always had those nice little pretty keyboard lines, piano lines, and stuff. So I mean, yeah, but so did Tribe and Slum Village. But it's just they like, didn't have hooks. Though. They didn't have hooks. But that was an arena anthem, and you have to understand at the same time, Tommy Boy was putting out jock jams. I about to say yeah, the jock yeah. And so we had a relationship with all of the arenas in the country, and all of their music directors, so we could get when we whatever we put on that record would be played in all the re- arenas. And so when Hip Hop Array went on that record, it got played in all of the arenas. So one of the reasons it got big, and it's still big now, is because a lot of Tommy Boy acts became arena anthems because we controlled Jock Jam. <laughs> and you're not thinking Come, about baby. that. Oh, K-7. Oh, that was damn. Your, that was your man, K-7. I'm just discovering that right now. But oh, I, yeah. I mean, I guess House of Pain would fall into that too because yeah. Jump Around was... We didn't uh, talk about that, which that album was the... You know. they didn't talk about my favorite, one of my favorite hip hop groups of all time. Either. Digital Underground. Digital Underground. Six. Yeah. One question I had: the Tommy Boy was it the Tommy Boy Black Black Label and the yeah. Silver Black label. label? Yeah. What was what was that era? That was uh, for the underground beats. We had, we had Silver and we had Black, and Black was supposed to be you know for a bunch of twelve inch singles where we were prospecting for things, but that we're going for sort of uh, an underground hip hop audience and trying to find something that would be able to launch through. DJ specialty shows, you know, and college radio. That's what you know. That was that was that attempt. Nothing actually really came, ended up coming through. Oh, okay. And that, but we could sign. We wanted to increase our bandwidth so we could sign more music, and so we did it that that way. And then Silver was disco, uh, dance oriented, more stuff because you know Tommy Boy was always a DJ label. So we, you know, we while we were putting out all this hip hop, we were also putting out. EDM electronic music that's not not necessarily hip hop. We put out 808 State, 
you know, information society, which you did mention before, but then there's a, a whole bunch of things like we put out Cold Cut and, um, and LFO, you know, so, and those were like the first electronica records in America we put out. So there, it's not just in hip hop where we pioneered, we pioneered in, in other genres as well. So what made the artists leave Tommy Boy? Because I'm looking at all the people you name and like, once they left Tommy Boy, like that was kind of it for them. Maybe that was their time. I guess, you know, so everybody thinks that uh, if they're only on a label that spends more money or that's more powerful, they should do better. But, you know, did you did you ever have aspirations to turn Tommy Boy into a major? Uh, like I said, I'm. Or you always had an independent spirit. I, and- I like to be the innovator more than the you know the competitor. I like to you know be the first one in and try to do something nobody else did and have people say, "Wow, you know that that's a, you know a turning point for me in my life." And people can say Planet Rock was that for a lot of people. Daylight was that for a lot of people. You know, I'm sure there are a lot of women who could say Latifah was that for, even though her records, you know, never went gold for us. You know, her her music she was and the impact for her? of her video. She was still never, 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 never went gold. gold? No. no, the only Ladies, gold record she had was, was after she left Motown, and went to Motown. With the, with the uni, uh, UNITY, uh, Black, Black, Black Rain, Rain, the Black Rain. Yeah. What? Yeah. Not Ladies Nature First. Nature of a Sister and like, yeah. no, nah. Wow. Yeah. Ladies First, all of They that. were claimed and, you know. But, you know, part of it was females in hip-hop. You know, females in hip-hop never sell as much as males in hip-hop. Why even. is that, Tom? <laughs> you me. That's a whole show. That's Whoa, a whole other show. Wrong. And I don't want to keep Tretch like waiting. You. Okay, you're right. <laughs> you're right. I'm sorry. I know what could happen, man. I got to get yeah, there before the mice get You don't want to have some snakes come yeah, up in you. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate uh, your wisdom. Uh, just one last question. Where do you feel music dance music hip-hop culture like do you still feel that it's thriving has some life left is this which one dance music do you, no no i mean just in general like tra- I mean, well if tra- when track is successful it'll be a whole re- renaissance because if you can unleash all of the catalog in the world and let people access it we're gonna ha- see a musical renaissance like we never did before and i think if it can happen while trump is president so much the better because I think we're going to have a lot of great music for over the next four years, too. <laughs> From your mouth to God's ears. Well, thank you very much, Tom Silverman. I appreciate it. Um, man, I'm sorry. After he dropped the 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 bomb about the sample clearance thing. Track lib. Yeah, that was... I just absolutely lost the script to the entire show. <laughs> I have regrets. I don't have reflections. I have regrets because I... You know, there there were some digital underground stories oh, man, and, yeah, yeah. and uh, man, damn, I didn't get to ask about AOI part one, two, and three, and yeah, yeah. None we, of the, did we get part three? We never. Well, get, I, I wanted to know where what part happened to part three, part three was. Yeah. yeah, but we can, you know, have Prince Paul. Oh, not well, we can have Paul. He was part of No, but Prince Paul was also working on part three. Oh, he, oh, he was. was? Three. He was uh, supposed to. Yes. Was well, like damn. The, the return. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, I've learned that uh, I have to ask more concise questions on Quest Love. <laughs> no, no. And it only took you 25 episodes. <laughs> damn. Oh, really? Y'all? <laughs> Did, he? No. Did you hear Usher? Yo, no, yo what it is, man, because I, I, this is what I learned in this episode. Look, in man, terms of I our style. Holy, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, okay, this is what it is. This is our dynamic. All right, this is what, this is what we got to be, okay? I'm the video, you're the pop-up bubbles. 
<laughs> you feel me? Like this is how we. So it's like if we do it for moving on, or or you can be the video and I can be part, whatever. But we have to have just like a continuous track where it's just beats, just boom, 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 boom. And in those beats, it's like, hey, pop up bubble for like two minutes, and then okay, back to the beat. Because like we never even get to like. I forgot where, where did we get lost? Where did I lose? Track? I think we did good this time. I mean, well, considering it was well, cool, but we didn't get to get to like the meat the of the grit. shit. Like yeah, like but the, naughty and. But the fucking, thing is, I don't think I, I also don't think that Tom is full of. The, the the stories we really wanted to you know what I mean like Latin quarter stories that was that <laughs> there was that time when you know they had a machete at my neck well and, I don't think he would have the, those stories I think like with people like him like what we have I mean three hours sounds like a lot of time please. but when you are dealing with a motherfucker like that it's really not a lot remember of time. y'all I mean we you only got spend, to midnight marauders on Q tip so give ourselves some credit yeah so it's like you kind of gotta I think just have him if we just went just beat to beat to beat. Hell, that's two hours easy just right there. If we just Tom knew so, he wanted so, to see with me, that. the first the first <laughs> hour goes by so slow, and usually <laughs> when it gets to like one hour fifty minutes, <laughs> yeah. Love that people are listening to us. Oh, I, yeah, I, yeah, they're listening in on it. This is great. Like, y'all, y'all feel the same? Hey, they're tweeting right now. I can see the tweets coming in. <laughs> yeah, they're well, listening to like a fucking. Uh, uh, well, first of all, if session. anyone is still sticking with the show, they are diehard fans. Yes. Thank you. Thank That's you. That's my clap. Thank y'all, you. y'all the best. All yeah. 12 of y'all. And <laughs> we can only build up from there. Thanks, Mom. I, I still feel as though, you know, there's there's major uh, knowledge that we gain from the show. But I will admit that once he started talking about the idea of sample clearances being a thing again. That's amazing. I absolutely just threw the script out the show. See, I, and, I knew that was going to happen too because we were actually talking about that before, beforehand. Before we started. And, and I was like, like oh, when Amir I was like, hears this, I was like, when Amir hears this, the show is over. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of, I'm sorry, did you learn anything about you? <laughs> Yo, I'll just keep it short and simple. I was just going to say, I appreciated what he said. He was an innovator, not a competitor. Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and yeah. I just, not for nothing, and that's dope and it's good to know that you can you know fear is a powerful thing and the fact that he was like you know I, the, the common thread I kind of see run through his career is that he's like I mean he's essentially a filter like he's a person that's saying hey like with the dance the disco mag like this is what you need to get on you know what I'm saying like kind of being just uh, you know just kind of being that conduit of like helping people sift through all the garbage and saying yo this is what the fuck y'all need to be on and uh, he's a filter and like a facilitator. That's what I picked up from his career path. Like even with them doing the track lip stuff, that is something that uh, I mean, it can make a, a lot of money, but uh, it is also something that, again, it filters through all the bullshit. So if you already know there's no way in hell I can clear this sample. Let me give you a list of samples or library samples that you know you can clear. I'm just waiting to find out how the major labels are going to screw it all up because they always find they always a way. do. Right? They always find a way. <laughs> I'm saying, I imagine it's got to be some kind of scale because I mean you can't tell me that like they're gonna charge Kanye me the, the same, same thing as Rihanna, right? Right, right, right. It's got to be something. It, it, it'll be a jig. In I there think, but I, I feel as though if we just come up with and the thing was he was doing percentages. Mm-hmm. If it's minimum usage, because what what I was trying to explain was the main loop of transmitting live from Mars is really. The, the Hey Jude, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Wilson Pickett loop, mm-hmm. the is mm-hmm. is just, that's the yeah. one second turtle thing. And so it's like, 
you know, if if there is a fair percentage thing going on, then you know it's free for all. But you know, now you deal with publishers that just say, you know, I want seventy five percent of that, and if they use the second one, I want seventy five. And there's no one hundred fifty percent pie, you know. Yeah. So it's for me that is the best i mean even if it doesn't come to fruition in my lifetime in a way that's like fair and like quote back in the day i mean just the fact that someone else is thinking of it because i spend every waking moment wishing that one of these publishing house people would just yeah, get on their crack dealership yeah because i know yeah. they're not making money they're just sitting on on publishing and not making it work. So, you know, let's let's keep keep yeah, shout keep, out to track. Keep Hopefully, they make it work. Yes, they need to get Mad Lib involved. Mad Lib for Track Lib, like just <laughs> that could be a, a market. Or the new Mad Lib. Oh, DJ, DJ Harrison. Harrison. Yes, my man. Shout out to him, Richmond, VA. So, we'll see. but I think it's though he's thinking about that kind of shit. That's hot. Thoughts? I needed that. Shit. Bill. I thought it was interesting how he looked at the artist as a whole it was about marketing and promos and whatever it wasn't just about whether the music was good the music initially had to be good and then his ability to exploit everything about it was sort of amazing to me i thought i just i don't think like that at all you know so that was a yeah the way he thought about it as a label guy because that was something that i had argued you know where it was like Back in the day, it's like, okay, well, what if we take a smaller percentage up front or take a smaller advance to ensure that we can get more in the long? And, like, every manager, every attorney, they're all like, they want to get as much as you can up front because that may be the only money you see. Right. And it's like, well, well, shit, if you take $500,000, that is going to be the only money you see. You know what I mean? But I don't know. It was I, I, it was good to hear him. Uh, hear him but the stickers and, like, things like that, like, you see all those stickers fucking everywhere, and they were all about... It was a visual thing as much as an audio thing, which I thought was very interesting. It's called branding. Thank you. Genius. Now it is. What are you fucking? It's like a 15-year-old <laughs> word, branding. Yeah, it's branding. Yeah. yeah, they were more famous. Like, they, from time of was probably next to Def Jam. They were, like, the only label I can remember that I could I would buy based on it Marketed. being on Tommy Boy. Yeah. Like, if it was a Tommy Boy record, like, okay. They could be official. That was the cosign. Exactly. This could be official. Uh, any thoughts, uh, Bill? Um, I mean, I kind of really want to piggyback off of it, what everybody else has said about the about Tom being a label guy. <clears throat> Excuse me, and thinking of the track thing, the way that he's thought of it. I mean, I hate to say it, but it reminds me of thoughts that I've had, you know, coming up. I mean, actually, his whole interview, you know, just from the fact that he was doing tip sheets and stuff like that when he was younger. I mean, I was coming up with making up charts of my own. When I was like 10, <laughs> 12, 13. You like, made your own charts? Yeah, I was making up charts because... <laughs> No, I was like when I, when Jet Magazine used to come home. So I read, I read, you, you Jet, ran Jet I, I read back I, to front. I read yes, Jet Magazine dude. back to front. Did anybody Absolutely. ever read Jet from front to back? I don't know. No. I always no. read it back to front. I did, Steve, well, I got did the you read of the Jet week? from back? <laughs> no, no, no. Did I? Did I? Did I take the beauty of the week? I from said, the back? "Beauty in the week in the back." Whoa. Why in the back? No, no, no she was in the middle. She was, was in the middle. She was in the middle. She was like, Paige. "It was the end." After beauty in the week, I didn't read it past that. He's like, "It was the society." <laughs> it was, it was the beauty in the week, and then the quotes, the celebrity quotes, the and that was pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, uh, from like doing the tip sheets and 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 just the way that he was, you know, pretty much said that he's contrarian and is always thinking about what's missing and and what's not there. It's, it's, it reminds me a lot of myself. Put and, some paint where it ain't, and makes me realize that I just wasted thirty-seven years of my life. <laughs> 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 and on that note, ladies and gentlemen, unpaid yeah. bill. What? Wasted boss bill. <laughs> Fontigolo, Laia, and Sugar Steve. <laughs>
Any sheeple. words, Sugar Steve? Oh, the huh? sheeple. Any words? Yeah, he's supposed to ask me before you say, say goodbye to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. Engineer. Uh, and that's it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Come back for next week's Quest Love for free. When I'll tell you what I learned last week. <laughs> Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.